Commissioners, my name is Buckley Initial S. I'm attending this morning as agent for the Commission Administer, the, or Administrator, the Honourable Chess Crosby. We welcome everyone to the second day of the Toronto hearings of the National Citizens' Inquiry. For those watching online that are not familiar with the National Citizens' Inquiry, we are a citizen-organized, a citizen-run, a citizen-funded organization, and our goal is to hold hearings across the country. We've started in Truro, Nova Scotia two weeks ago. We're now in Toronto. We're going to Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Red Deer, Victoria, Vancouver, Quebec City, and then we're going to end in our nation's capital, Ottawa. And as we go, we are planning on just having the momentum grow and grow and grow. We want all Canadians to be participating in this dialogue. We want all Canadians to have the freedom, and I choose that word carefully, the freedom to simply share their stories without fear so that we can come together, discover what happened, and together figure out how to do things better the next time. I would totally invite you, in fact I am inviting you, to please go to our website, nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. We have a petition, sign it, so that we know that you're supporting us, you're supporting this initiative. We ask that you would donate. Um, as I say, we're citizen funded, we don't have a single big donor. We're relying on small donations from the citizens to drive this forward. And it gives us freedom to move by doing this, but it only works if you participate. So I <coughs> invite you to do that. Um, commissioners, before we begin, I just wanted to share a few words that, um, about something a witness said yesterday, and then kind of my thoughts on it, which I think are important for us going forward. We had Dr. Robert Malone testify yesterday, and part of his presentation involved um, psychological operations being run by military, including the Canadian military, against citizens. And if I recall correctly, he brought up four or five news articles about this happening in Canada by our authorities. And he showed us some clips and, and gave a presentation that indicated that we literally are in a battle for our minds, for our minds, and that we won't know that they're in our minds. We won't know that we're being influenced and being captured. And one of the things that they do is they play on our emotion. And... <clears throat> This has divided us. Now, but one of the, the things is, is that when you see a tactic, when you can finally identify it, it gives you the ability to basically neutralize it. And I wanted to speak about <clears throat> um, just basically this tactic of influencing our minds so much that we become strongly emotional about a subject. I had uh, an experience about seven years ago where, uh, you know, I was getting to know some new people um, and the topic of climate change came up and they were voicing a, a specific side of the, the climate change argument in a very strong way and I just suggested that, you know, there's more to that story. There's, you know, there's another side. 
And <clears throat> these two people literally exploded on me. They started yelling. They literally started yelling. So they were so emotionally invested in their narrative that and they had an emotional reaction. Now that is the sign that you're captured, your mind is captured. And how, so whenever you find yourself on any topic, actually the topic comes up and now you are strongly emotionally invested, understand that the emotion closes your mind. You know, we have these terms open mind, closed mind, change your mind. Do you know that when you change your mind, and, and it, we've all had this experience where we believed a certain thing, and then we learn different information, and we believe something else. Well, in our mind, actually, the neurons get rewired to say the something else is now your truth. We literally do change our mind. And I think, you know, that term, um, having a closed mind, is true. <clears throat> when you feel strongly emotional on a topic, you are not willing to listen to the other side because you're experiencing strong emotion. Who does that hurt? Does that hurt the other side? <clears throat> the only person that isn't willing to receive new information when you're feeling strongly about something is you. Let me say that again. The only person who is, who is not willing to hear new information when you're feeling strongly about a subject is you. Surely it doesn't help you if your mind is closed to new information. Receiving new information doesn't mean you need to change your mind. But if your mind is closed, that means your thoughts are captured because you are incapable of hearing new information that would permit you to choose to change your mind. So if you have a strong emotional reaction to any subject, understand you are captured, your thoughts are captured, and you are not free to think differently. Now, <clears throat> when, this, <clears throat> when we are captured, we literally can't see it. So this morning when I'm talking, I'm just kind of thinking about what I wanted to introduce this, um, or how to explain this topic, the idea of stock market bubbles came up to me. And for those of you who don't know what a stock market bubble is, that's where, you know, the prices of stocks are just getting inflated and inflated and inflated for no good reason. So if we use the dot-com um, bubble, you know, like any, any, you just start a website and have a business idea and all of a sudden you're getting all this venture financing, but you're not making any money, you're not selling a product, but these stocks just kept going up and up. It was a bubble. <clears throat> and people with experience in the stock market will know the phrase or, or the, the axiom that, People inside a, a stock market bubble can't see the bubble. Afterwards, they understand there was a bubble. But while you're in it, you just can't see it. Your mind is closed. You're just caught up in this euphoria. But it's being able to understand that uh, we get captured. I'm just using it as another example of how we get captured. And <clears throat> now that I've set this up, I want to introduce the most important part. Um, and I want to talk about VAX passports, and I want to talk about digital passports. Because <clears throat> we think of VAX passes, 
and we think of digital passports as things, as maybe actions, but they are messages. They are messages. I don't know uh, how many here, because he's a little dated, remember the Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan and his famous phrase, the medium is the message. Now, he was speaking in the television age, and his point was, is, you know, we've gone from print to a video medium and a radio medium, and we're getting messaging, but actually it's the medium itself, which is also the message that is communicating to us. So <clears throat> TV captures you in a different way and has a different message. Um, he, he was gone before we hit this smartphone age. I, it's funny, I'm one of the few people in the world now that does not carry a cell phone. And I can be in a place like an airport with, you know, 500 people, and I'm the only one looking up. Everyone else. It's happened to me where literally I've, I've scanned the room, and out of uh, hundreds of people, I'm the only one looking up. And we all know with the younger generations that now they're thinking differently because the medium has changed that generation. The medium is the message. A digital passports, vaccine passports are a message. They are not a thing. They are not an action. They are a message. And let, let me explain, because they're a mechanism of control. They are a message to control. And you'll understand after I, I finish my explanation. And uh, <clears throat> I'll use Alberta as an example. We're here today on March 31st, 2023. If we were just to back up 14 months in Alberta, which is not long ago, <clears throat> we were separated into... Two groups of people. We had vaccinated people. We had unvaccinated people. We were having to wear masks. <clears throat> unvaccinated people could not go to, let's say, their, their child's hockey game. They could not go to a restaurant. They basically were limited to accessing essential services those being grocery stores and, and gas stations and the like. Now, <clears throat> people in the vaccinated group, and I, I've heard, I heard them say this, and um, they actually felt that they, they were in a better situation. They actually felt that they had privileges that the unvaccinated people didn't have, and they didn't understand that actually they were in a worse situation than the unvaccinated people because they were receiving a message that the unvaccinated people were not receiving. And to put this into context, prior to this COVID adventure and prior to these mandates, all of the vaccinated people were free. They were, and when you're free, you don't need anyone's permission to do something. So the vaccinated people prior to the passports, they were free to go to their child's hockey game. They were free to go to a restaurant. They didn't have to ask anyone's permission. 
they were just free to do it. They wouldn't have even thought of it. Like the idea of asking for somebody's permission or the idea of going through a police state ritual to be able to do something like that was foreign to them. But now that they were vaccinated and they had their identity papers, they had their vaccine passport, they were now able to participate in the message, the police state ritual of going to a restaurant and showing their identification papers. Now, <clears throat> here's the message. And police states do this not because they need to know that you went to the restaurant, not that they need to know you went through a roadblock, not that they need to know you went to your child's hockey game. That's not the real purpose. The real purpose is to send the message that they are the master and you are the servant because you are not free to go to your child's hockey game unless you show your identification papers, which gives you permission from your master to enter the rink. Do you understand a vaccine passport a digital passport is not a thing, it is not an action, it is a message. So, you know, go back to Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia where they had roadblocks and you had to show your papers. It wasn't about controlling your access. Did they really care that you went from one part of the city to the next? They knew where you lived, they knew where you were going to go home for supper that night. But by having you participate in that police state ritual, every time it happens at a subconscious level, it sends the message that you are the servant being granted permission by your master to participate in whatever privilege you are now being granted from your master and it reinforces that you do not have the right to do what your master is allowing you to do if you participate in the messaging. And so going forward, we've just had this experience with vaccine passports where, you know, people would be bragging online digitally about, I can go to the restaurant and this and that and rubbing it in the face of, you know, unvaccinated people that couldn't go anywhere, not understanding that the joke was on them because they, every time they were doing that, they were participating in the message that they were the servant, that the state was their master, and that whereas they were free to do this before, they are now accepting as the message that it is now a privilege, not a right, it is a privilege being granted to them from their masters. And we have to start thinking philosophically about what these things mean. So we are going to be asked going forward to accept digital passports. Major grocery store chains are already starting to put turnstiles. I, I've seen it in, in the Edmonton area where I live. That's part of the vaccine passports where, you know, for simple things we're going to have to start showing these IDs you know, for our safety, to help the government, for whatever reason it's going to be. But it's actually not about that. Like, it's not about, contra you know, contact tracing. It's not about safety. It's about the message. <clears throat> the passports are the message. And we have to understand that 
to protect ourselves from accepting the message, even if we find ourselves in a situation where we haven't been able to resist them, understand that they are a message so that you do not subconsciously find yourselves in the situation where you believe you are not a free human being, but that you are a slave being granted permission from your master. So, um, and I didn't mean to get so dark, but I think it's, it's really important to speak about this. We had um, Professor Bruce Party yesterday talking about how we have arrived in an administrative state as opposed to a democratic state and going actually back down to philosophical principles. And I th Professor Party did us a great service by showing us something that we didn't see before. Because he was pointing out, we can argue about, you know, was masking in the public interest? Were, you know, were mandates in the public interest? Were lockdowns in the public interest? But the real issue is, why did the health authorities get to decide what was in the public interest? And so, you know, we have to start paying attention in a different way to what's going on and questioning what things mean because if we don't understand what's going on we can't decide what we're going to do about it because then our minds are captured so <clears throat> we're uh, <clears throat> unless the commissioners have uh, some comments to start our day we'll we'll call our first witness so i think we're good to go and i'd like to introduce uh we've got oh yes i'm sorry we're going to watch a video first and then we'll call our first witness. Thank you. Good afternoon. I know we're all eager to get things back to normal. And no one wants to get the economy going and get people back to work more than I do. And that means having a responsible plan. It means taking the best scientific advice and working together with our partners. Yeah, so our chief medical officers and uh, contact with all other chief medical officers, including the one in Toronto, I'm in close contact. I had a good conversation with Mayor Tory. Um, you know, we, we don't make a move in any region without the uh, full consent of the local chief medical officer and most times the, the local mayor. So, uh, Travis, uh, we would be able to answer that uh, probably a little better in the next few days. Um, and that would probably be a good question for Mayor Tory to answer and the Chief Medical Officer of Toronto uh, to answer. Hi Premier, you, you just mentioned the people trying to work hard to put food on their table and um, following up on Randy's question, what's to say that they, they wouldn't or shouldn't just start ignoring emergency messages? We saw over the weekend protests throughout the province, massive protests in, in Toronto over two days. Uh, we've seen the Trinity Bellwoods Park before, we've seen weeks of protests outside Queen Park, Queen's Park with no enforcement. Uh, the Prime Minister even took, place, uh, took part in a, a protest with no social distancing, not everyone was wearing masks, and there was no enforcement, yet steps from there, uh, a, a restaurant gets fined for letting people eat on their patio. So if there's not enforcement of the rules for everyone, why should business owners say, you know what, I'm going to keep listening to the, the premier, to the province, and sacrifice my livelihood uh, when others aren't? Well, I, I understand the, the, the question, and 
for the most part, uh, vast majority of the people are listening. And as for the protests, people are hurting. You know, certain communities are hurting out there. And uh, I understand the protests, and I understand them. a lot of them were, were social distancing and some weren't, but they're in pain right now. And uh, collectively as a province, uh, we're all going to work together to, uh, to fix that. Uh, as for the prime minister being out there, you're going to have to ask him uh, that, that question. But I truly believe in the people of Ontario and the people of Ontario have stuck with us. We're on the same team. And yes, there's been a few incidents, but the vast majority of the people across this province have been working uh, well uh, together with us. And as I always say, we're all, we're all in this together. So we're, we'll get through it together too. I'd like to introduce uh, another council that's going to be working with me today, Ms. Genevieve Eliani. And uh, Ms. Eliani and I practiced together uh, years ago in Kamloops. She's now a, a lawyer in the Toronto area, and I'm pleased that she's participating with us today. And she will be dealing with the first witness, Rick Nicholas, who is, I believe, attending virtually. Good morning, commissioners, and good morning uh, to the online um, audience. I'll ask the first witness to uh, state and spell his name for the record, please. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Rick Nichols, uh, R-I-C-K-N-I-C-H-O-L-L-S. Could you uh, promise or affirm to tell the truth, please? So help me God. Yes, I do. Great. Uh, Mr. Nichols, if you could start with a general introduction of uh, who you are and your role between 2011 and 2022, please. Happy to do so. I was elected first to the Ontario Legislative Assembly in October of 2011, and I served three terms, uh, ending obviously uh, June 2nd of uh, 2022. Uh, throughout those uh, three terms, for the first 10 years, I was a member of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario and held numerous positions, uh, first in opposition as, uh, as different uh, shadow cabinets, uh, shadow cabinet ministers. But also in my second term, I was appointed the uh, one of the deputy speakers in opposition for the Ontario Legislative Assembly. And then later uh, in the, my third term, I was appointed the a government deputy speaker for the Ontario Legislative Assembly. Thank you. We'll start with your uh, general position uh, on vaccines. Could you tell us about your hesitancy? First off, I want to make it very clear that I'm not an anti-vaxxer. However, having followed reports of what was happening around the world and the vaccine injuries and even deaths that were being reported, uh, I had made the decision along with my wife that we would not uh, have this substance injected into our bodies simply because of the fact that uh, we weren't certain of what the outcome would be. And I held true to that and maintained my integrity throughout the, the entire ordeal. How did you voice your concerns with the legislature when you were at work? 
Well, first of all, uh, throughout, we would have caucus meetings, um, and throughout those caucus meetings, at various times, there would be uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for Ontario, started with Dr. Uh, Dr. Williams, and then talked, then after he had uh, retired, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore. And uh, they would be giving presentations as well as other doctors, uh, giving presentations to caucus. And there was an opportunity, because it was all on Zoom, uh, to ask questions. And I would ask questions about uh, the, the efficacy of these particular vaccines, especially having heard of the injuries that were being reported throughout the world and even within the province themselves. And of course, uh, some people, even more locally, were experiencing uh, side effects from these vaccines. But no one would ever come forward and say, well, it was the vaccine that caused that. How would you describe the general response to your concerns at the legislature? Well, you know, I think it was mixed. I think it was mixed. Uh, there was uh, uh, several opportunities uh, where I voiced my, my concerns. And sometimes, as you know, on Zoom, you can have a, a full, uh, full picture of everyone, or most people anyway, uh, sitting in and listening to the Zoom. And there was one individual who was the uh, campaign manager for the re-elect Doug Ford 2022, who was sitting in on the uh, sitting in on the caucus meetings. And one time I recall when I was asking questions of the of the medical uh, advisor or the medical people there, uh, I caught him just kind of shaking his head as if to say, you know, uh, he totally disagreed. Uh, other than that, I would have con side sidebar conversations with uh, some of my other colleagues and some some were supportive. Uh, there were a few that actually uh, I said, yeah, we, we are not in, we, we do not want to get uh, the vaccine for, for various reasons, for, the, for their own personal What were the consequences for you personally with uh, the Conservative caucus? Well, obviously uh, I had been uh, approached, uh, I recall one day I was driving back uh, from the legislature back to Chatham, which is my hometown, and I received a phone call and it was Premier Ford. And we talked and his basic uh, comment to me was because he had known that there were a number of caucus members, myself, uh, that were vaccine hesitant, uh, not wanting to get vaccinated. So he called me and he basically said, Rick, please do me a favor, get vaccinated. To which I responded and said, Premier, that's going to be a little challenging for me, a little difficult for me. And I gave him my reasons, to which he replied, look, I don't need an answer right now, but by all means, think it over and let me know. Well, then I proceeded to get a phone call the following day from uh, one of the pollsters for the party. And then on the Monday, I received a phone call from the uh, campaign chair uh, for the uh, for the PC reelect Doug Ford campaign. Now, this gentleman uh, was also a co-founder of a company called Rubicon Strategies, who, by the way, they're a lobbyist firm and they represented uh, Big Pharma. Uh, Pfizer was one of them, Johnson & Johnson. AstraZeneca or others. And he said to me in a very unapologetic way, he said, you've got 72 hours. You either get vaccinated or you will be removed from the PC caucus. And I thought, wow. I said, you're, you're, that's a, you're threatening me? You're an unelected official and you're threatening me. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will talk to my doctor 
and uh, see whether to get his input. Well, of course, he basically said the following day, Rick, you know, you're healthy, you're good. Uh, the vaccines are safe and effective. Uh, I see no reason why you shouldn't get vaccinated. To which I responded, well, thank you very much. Um, I, I hold a different opinion. And so that was on the Tuesday. On the Wednesday, I drove up to Toronto and uh, prepared my notes. And on Thursday, I went before the cameras in the uh, media studio at Queen's Park and uh, very succinctly and very directly uh, made the comment that I would not be receiving these vaccines, fully knowing as the as the has been indicated earlier in the week that if I didn't get vaccinated by Thursday, 72 hours, I would then be removed. And of course, I knew the, what the consequences would be. I was good at my end. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the government was good on their end. And about 5.30, a press release was re was put out stating that I had been removed from Congress. Ultimately, you ended up uh, leaving the Conservative Party, is that right? That's correct. When I was, when I was removed from caucus, I then uh, sat across the aisle um, as an independent. And that was my stand um, for, several, uh, for several months until I was approached by another Conservative Party, uh, to which I uh, had many discussions with them and decided to uh, support their leader, and then I joined the party and was appointed as deputy leader, and that was the Ontario party. It was like a standard across or sitting across from your former colleagues in the legislature? Uh, yes, I was. And it's interesting, you know, that at first we, everybody had to wear a mask except for one day, and you, you could still talk with a mask on, but I, I didn't like that because it sounded very muffled. But it's it's interesting how even when someone has a mask on, uh, you can kind of read body body language and facial expressions. And uh, I was seeing a lot of serious looks uh, from my former colleagues uh, as I sat in opposition uh, as an independent and then as a member of the Ontario Party. And that to me spoke volumes. But I was the one that put my political career at risk by holding on to my integrity and staying strong and re realizing that I, was, I wasn't alone. There were millions of people throughout uh, Canada, as well as uh, even in the States, that voiced their, sent, sent emails and uh, had phone calls from people uh, standing by and saying, Rick, we support you. We admire your, your courage. I thought, well, I just want to do the right thing, not just for myself and my family, but also for others who were feeling the same way and were, as one we might say, somewhat vaccine hesitant. Would you say that your colleagues, um, or that you had the impression that your colleagues might be fearful that if they spoke out, they would suffer the same consequences that you suffered? You know, I that, that thought has gone through my mind quite often. And, and of course, you know, sometimes people will put uh, money or careers ahead of uh, doing the right thing. And uh, and so, you know, they, they claim that they received uh, the vaccines uh, two shots, uh, and some three, and maybe even four. But it's sadly is that uh, I've talked to many people who have come up to me afterwards and said, Rick, you know, I, I got the two shots, but I am not getting any more shots because more and more data was coming out. And uh, despite the fact that the Minister of Health 
would continually say to me when I would challenge her uh, in the legislature during question period, you know, that the the canned phrase was these vaccines are safe and effective, protect your family, protect your friends, get vaccinated. We'll shift gears now to some of your um, direct legislative experience. Can you tell us where and when orders and bills were generally discussed? Initially, bills are discussed in caucus and they're brought forward, but it's it's kind of a, like at a 5,000 foot level. And uh, generally speaking, the minister uh, presenting the bill, it would be a government bill, uh, would give an overview of what it is and, and, ca- and capture the, the highlights of that particular bill. Then after the presentation was made by a minister, then uh, everyone in caucus had an opportunity to ask questions. And then once that was sufficient, then initially, or, or then after that, the, the bill would be uh, read for the first time, introduced in the legislature, and then there'd be debate at second reading. And then from there, after the debate, uh, there'd be a vote. And assuming usually government bills uh, always always pass, uh, they would then go into committee and hopefully come out of committee with even stronger recommendations to make the bill even better. Then it would come back for a third reading, and that's the that's the the final reading. There'd be debate, and then a vote. You mentioned uh, the readings. Can you comment on how the timing of readings changed during the pandemic? Well, it's that's a that's an interesting question. A lot a lot of times, you know, first of all, the government. Uh, the Emergency Act, as an example, and that's the one that I got very vocal about uh, sitting in opposition. Um, that particular bill, you know, passed the uh, second reading, and there was a timeline on that that said that basically uh, from the from the, a previous uh, reading, they had to extend the Emergency Act, and that the date I believe in that was around December first. So this is now taking place about a week before, and. Interestingly enough, how that in a in a an evening sitting where there's not many MPPs there, just those who are on house duty, and I I wasn't on house duty, but I stayed in my office uh, because I felt that something might be up that week, and I was late in my office on Monday night and Tuesday night, and on Wednesday night suddenly I hear the solicitor general uh, come on and she starts talking about a bill, and I went, why would she be talking about a bill at third reading? And then it occurred to me. Uh, that she's talking about, you know, this uh, this motion to extend the uh, Emergency Act uh, into, like, I believe it was late March of 2022. So that kind of had, I had some red flags kind of pop up in my head, and I, I went down, sought clarification, went back up to my office, and at that point in time, I finished up my notes uh, because I wanted to speak to it. And I got there, had I been 10 seconds later, because... If no one stands to do further debate uh, on a particular bill, then the speaker uh, is is then asked to ask three times, further debate, further debate, and then th- further debate. And if no one else stands, that forces a vote. And, of course, I walked in. Had I been 10 seconds later, I think I would have missed out on the third further debate. I got there at the second one. And I got over to my seat, and uh, then I stood, and I had an opportunity to raise my concerns as to why I would not support 
the extension of the of that particular motion, as well as the fact that if, and I also made it very clear that since the Minister of Health was constantly saying these vaccines are safe and effective, I raised the issue that if they are that safe and effective, then they should they should not give big pharma what I would call, if you want to use the monopoly example, uh, a get out of jail card free uh, card. Because right now under those orders, uh, big pharma were protected and any vaccine injuries or any deaths that occurred, uh, they could not be sued. So I said, well, if you're so confident, then remove that from the bill. That didn't happen. Um, after I was finished, there was, again, uh, no one else stood up, and that forced uh, a vote. Uh, the The procedure is the speaker says all those in favor say aye, opposed say nay. I said nay. I was the only one that said nay. He said I heard a nay. I heard a no. Um, in my opinion, the eyes have it. Uh, had there been five people, myself and four others, stand, that would have forced a recorded vote. Unfortunately, I was the only one there uh, that opposed it. Therefore, the bill passed third reading on a voice vote. So we've heard that you didn't get much notice about um, this debate. How much time typically did MPPs have to review uh, new orders and legislation and anything that was to be uh, passed in the in the House? Well, the House leaders, uh, both on the government side and opposition, uh, are given a heads up as to what bills are going to be uh, introduced, and uh, and typically it's 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 somewhat short notice, but but at least you know the house leaders then let their especially in opposition uh, they let their people know so that those who want to speak to it can speak to it and get to get their speaking points you know all in a all in a row and can present during debate. But was there time to review the legislation in detail? Uh, no. Uh, oftentimes, again, during a, uh, a caucus meeting, uh, details are, are brought brought forward and a review. If, for example, in opposition, if uh, if the opposition uh, requests a meeting uh, to review the bill, uh, that is often granted. And uh, but but then shortly thereafter, and then suddenly the you know d during proceedings. Uh, when the uh, when the speaker asks for orders of the day, uh, that's when a particular bill is introduced, and they start right into uh, they start right into uh, debate on it. Actually, at second reading, and of course, ultimately, you're always told how to vote by the party, right? Well, yes, we are. We are. Uh, typically, it would be political suicide uh, for someone to uh, oppose. Now, that's not to say that uh, there were times. Even when I was in opposition where the government would bring forth a, a bill, that would be the liberal government at that time. And uh, there'd be a number of us actually in Cox that says, no, we, we can't we, we can't support this particular bill. So then, and I remember our leader at the time said, well, look, it would look bad on us if we stood, a bunch of us stood in favor and we had a number of uh, caucus members uh, stand opposed. So do us a favor. Just don't show up for the vote. And so that was often the case for that. But in uh, uh, when in, in government, if someone was vehemently opposed to a particular bill, 
then they would they would be asked not to show up for the vote. Or sometimes, and it happened uh, actually with, with one individual, uh, no one knew that uh, this individual was uh, vehemently opposed to the, a bill that was being brought forward. It wasn't the bill that we're talking about now. And uh, this individual silently voted against it because we had to, because of because of COVID, uh, the voting structures were, were different. We had to go into our various, you know, east wing, west wing to vote. And we just kind of walked through when the, the clerks would check our names out. This individual uh, went on the nay side and voted, but then also issued a uh, a, a press release indicating that uh, uh, how how they were opposed to this particular bill. Well, that basically spelled the demise of this individual uh, from caucus. So that person was removed as well, but for different reasons. Okay. Thank you very much. We're out of time. So I uh, very much appreciate your testimony today. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Thank you for the time. I believe we may have a question from the commissioners. Is that right? Before you leave us, Mr. Nichols, one moment. Apologies, commissioners. Good morning. I just have a quick question. The Solicitor General that you're referring to, is that Sylvia Jones? Yes, that's correct. Did Sylvia Jones in discussions with uh, caucus ever speak about the, the people who were demonstrating out of her office, outside her office, repeatedly? who were opposed to vaccines. Did that ever come up in her decision-making powers? That I, I, I unfortunately, I, I don't have an answer for that. I, I do not know for sure. I know that there were uh, demonstrations and uh, a number of ministers were being uh, targeted. Uh, she may have been targeted, but I don't recall um, her specifically talking about the uh, protesters outside of her office. So basically, just as a follow-up, her decision-making was coming from the health folks, her peers in the health, and not necessarily her constituents? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm confident of that. Uh, it, it, as a matter of fact, you know, even, even uh, locally for myself, uh, I had cons constituents that, that voiced concerns. Uh, you know, some were definitely in favor of it, uh, but there were also many that were fearful, and I didn't think that it was appropriate that even even businesses who had no medical background would in fact um, you know mandate these vaccines for people that didn't want it vaccinate or terminate that was that was the uh, the way it went and i was totally against that that to me that was coercion and people lost lost their jobs because of it and that just is not right and you would also know that sylvia jones is not a medical doctor that's correct. She is not. She and uh, and the Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, who, by the way, is not a medical doctor either, uh, but she was the Minister of Health, uh, were, uh, were very close uh, in, in throughout the entire COVID because the, the rules, were sorry, the responsibilities of the Solicitor General and, of course, the uh, responsibilities of the Minister of Health. But again, they were taking their lead from the Chief Medical Officers of Health uh, Dr. Williams, Dr. Moore, and I also firmly believe that the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons 
uh, we're, we're muzzling doctors and saying, this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. And I believe that they, in fact, were providing some direction uh, to, to the chief medical officers of health as well. There's a lot of advisors out there, but uh, what I found was that with many people, uh, you try to talk to them about it, and I have an adage, and it's called, don't confuse me with facts. My mind's already made up. And there was no real discussion about uh, whether or not these whether or not these mandates were, were going to be uh, uh, well received. Obviously, they weren't, because there was demonstrations going on uh, throughout the, throughout the province, actually, uh, even after I was even after I was removed from caucus. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning, Mr. Nichols. Thank you for uh, coming here to testify. I have a few short questions. Certainly, sir. How long were you a sitting member of the Ontario Legislature? Well, from October of uh, 2011 through to uh, August 19th, 2021, when I was removed from caucus. And you, um, you said that you were a member of caucus. For my information and perhaps for some of the folks listening, can you describe to me what you mean by caucus? Okay, those are the elected, the MPPs, elected MPPs, who were in fact, uh, uh, who won their seat sitting as a member of the, of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. That's caucus. They, they, every, every MPP uh, of the party, they, they comprise caucus. They're elected officials, but every once in a while, there'd be some unelected people in there uh, sitting in on those meetings as well. Um, you had mentioned to me that, or so you had mentioned in your testimony that um, you felt you were, your position was threatened by an unelected official. In your, time, in your time in the legislature, was that a common practice for unelected officials to come in and threaten your position as an elected official? Well, I can't speak for others. All I can do is speak for mine, and I certainly, uh, you know, didn't appreciate uh, the coercion, the threats, uh, from this unelected official telling me that, uh, that if I didn't comply, uh, with getting the vaccines, uh, by the way, his company, although he had stepped aside as the co-founder and, and, uh, and president of, uh, of Rubicon Strategies, uh, he, he in fact, uh, was very, very uh, threatening. And, uh, as a result, I had to deal with that. And I was not about to, uh, uh, comply to his uh, his direction. He's not a medical doctor either. Yeah, you were elected by in a certain riding or a certain area in Ontario to represent the people of that riding. Is that not correct? Yes, sir. It is. Uh, Chatham Kent Leamington is my riding. Mm-hmm. Proudly represented the people, and even after I was removed from caucus uh, after August nineteenth, twenty twenty one, I continued to uh, you know do my very best to support. Uh, the people, the constituents uh, in my right. Well, having said that, you had also said that when certain bills were coming uh, down the pipe and you may be imposed to those bills and and being on opposition, seeing as you're the elected representative in your riding, how, do, how is it that members can say they represent the people in the riding when the party tells them how they will vote universally? In other words, are you representing the party or are you representing the people? Therein is the, the million dollar question. 
uh, again, I mean, it's, so what would happen is that uh, the, when a bill is presented to caucus, there are talking points that uh, are also provided. Now, those talking points assist greatly in the preparation of debate talking points. And, of course, it's up to the individual, uh, that being the elected official, the MPP, to basically sell those talking points, not only in debate, but obviously uh, back in my writing, I had great staff, and they would fill, uh, we would have meetings, and I would say, okay, here's, here's how we're going to present this or, or talk about it. But there were times when uh, at some of those talking points uh, I didn't agree with, and candidly between uh, myself and maybe a person I was talking with who was quite upset, uh, I'd have a candid, uh, candid discussion with them regarding those talking points. Last uh, question. Um, I, when we listened, just before you came on, we listened to a video by Premier Ford, and I believe he said in that video that they were taking, they would not go against any, any uh, directives or information they got from the health officers. As a member of the caucus, do you recall being involved in any discussions where you raid, where the, the caucus weighed the risks and benefits of the vaccine, the lockdowns, the mandates, etc.? You know, you would expect health officers to make a certain decision or a certain recommendation, and then you would expect the politicians to review the social, financial, economic implications of those, debate them, and then make a decision as to to adopt them or to adopt modifications or not to adopt them at all. So were you involved in any of those risk-benefit uh, conversations? Well, again, one of the things that I that I would challenge during caucus meetings was the efficacy of the vaccines. Uh, I challenged on several occasions uh, the reasons why are we sub subjecting uh, 11 to 11 to 17 year olds or 12 to 17 year olds rather, you know, uh, with this with this vaccine when we're seeing that that two things. Uh, first of all, the younger people uh, don't necessarily uh, would, would not normally come down, come down with with COVID. Um, and I would I would challenge it. Why are we doing it? what recommend or what uh, what proof do we have that these vaccines are safe and effective? Where are the trials? And I would just get some an answer that that for as far as I was concerned, I wasn't satisfied with. And then when they also all of a sudden wanted to go down to uh, the five to eleven year olds, oh boy, I'll tell you, I I I, I questioned that, challenged the doctors, you know, in in our in our caucus meetings. But again, it would seemingly fall on deaf ears. Uh, it's the old story. Don't confuse me with facts. Our mind is made up. Thank you very much for your service and your courage in coming and, and representing the people of your riding and the people of Ontario. Thank you, sir. I truly appreciate the kind comments. Thank you. Here in person, if you could please state your name and spell it for the record, please. L-A-R-L-Y-N-N. -N. And do you promise or affirm to tell the truth today? Absolutely. Could you tell us uh, what your training, your professional training is? I am a registered nurse. And where were you working without naming the institution uh, during the pandemic? I was working in long-term care. Can you tell us uh, about some 
injuries you witnessed which appeared to be correlated to the administration of the vaccine? Yeah, we had um, large numbers of the, the residents with um, extremely painful arms um, for like days and days. They couldn't even lift their arms and stuff. We had to like prop them on a pillow. We saw some uh, patients break out in these huge boils. This one gentleman had boils all over his back. Uh, he was on four different types of antibiotics and nothing would help. And uh, on my on on the time I left, he was still dealing with at least two that were still there that we had to dress and uh, clean every day. How long were you working in this long-term care home? I have been working long-term care for four years. Can you comment on uh, how many deaths there were in your um, stay at this long-term care home? Well, my last um, long-term care home, which is um, shocking for me, um, the building holds uh, 55 residents, and um, they, they keep a book and a log on when people pass. And there were 34 deaths out of 55 in a one-year period I was there. Was that higher than what you had observed in your previous years working in long-term care? In all my years of nursing, period, I've never seen that kind of death rate. I understand that you worked nights and you were receiving communications and faxes. Can you uh, tell us about what you learned from these, uh, this correspondence? Sure. Um, because I was working night, I would um, get all the faxes and have to file them all. Uh, the, but I would frequently get the, the facts that came from the government and it would list the local, the, the area of our, I guess, our group, um, all, the, all the nursing homes and which ones were in lockdown, which ones were in lockdown for COVID and which ones were in lockdown for inf influenza or any other reason. Um, I found every time I got those, our nursing home was in um, COVID lockdown, only we never had one case in the whole full year I worked there. So to be clear, the, again, the, the faxes and the correspondence were reporting that your institution was closed for a lockdown, even Absolutely. though there was no COVID that you knew about? Right. And sometimes there wasn't even, we weren't in lockdown. On occasion, we had to be in lockdown because we had some false positives for staff or, or patients. But after a two-week period, the lockdown would, would be gone until the next occurrence. But there was never COVID in the building. What impact did you see on the residents with respect to lockdowns and uh, lack of visitors? Oh, that, it was really hard to watch. Um, they had to stay in their rooms. They ate out of paper plates, paper cups, plastic cups. Uh, they were not, no longer allowed to go to the dining room. They were no longer allowed to participate in any activities, crafts, music, anything. They were literally in their rooms for the whole two-week two lockdown periods, which there were quite a few when I was there. And they had no, no socialization, uh, just whoever was in their, in their room. Uh, but frequently, they're, they're not always, you know, uh, we have dementia patients and that kind of thing. So it's not like real company. It's not like getting out and talking and having conversation and, and being able to, to interact with people. That, that was a huge impact. And uh, we found uh, there was an increase in confusion, actually, because frequently they didn't know what was happening. And, uh, you know, they'd be all stressed and they'd walk out of the room and then they'd have to be put back in the room. And um, it was really hard to watch. And I know that some patients 
we saw just stopped eating. They stopped getting out of bed. And they, I, I really believe that they more or less died because they, they had no clue why family members weren't coming. Where are their grandchildren? You know, where are the people who love them? And they could not see them at any point. Let's speak about um, your personal experience. Um, as far as you could tell, when do you suspect you first had COVID? I first had COVID actually um, uh, February 2020, before the uh, thing was announced. And I knew I had COVID because I had six years of never had a, a flu or a cold. I take a lot of vitamins. I, I take uh, vitamin D, C, all those. I was already taking them. So they had prevented colds for a long period of time for me. But when I got what I perceived was COVID, I was flat out for three days. I like couldn't even move off the couch. And then after three days, I was fine. I was up and about and I wasn't, you know, I didn't have the headache, didn't have the, you know, the sore throat or anything like that. I was fine. And I understand you refused the vaccine, is that correct? Yes, I did. So um, what were some of the reasons that you chose not to receive it? Well, I have health issues and I, I was, um, I had t tested positive for lupus two years ago, so they're monitoring that. I have other autoimmune issues uh, that, that really prevented me from wanting to take the risk of putting anything in my body that might um, like increase my, my symptoms or, or make my, my issues worse. How did your refusal impact your ability to work? Sorry? How did your refusal impact your ability to work? Um, uh, initially, uh, the nursing home was, um, I was fine. I, w I worked in COVID right up until October 9th, 2021. I worked all through there. I worked large amounts of hours. I mean, I always felt like I was never home, but um, they started saying stuff like, um, Okay, we're, we're the nursing home or the owners of the nursing home are looking to get everybody vaccinated. So that was the first step. And then the next step was those who weren't vaccinated now had to do this little online course that they told all about COVID and all that stuff. I mean, we are registered nurses. I think we understood that. Uh, they put us, you know, in front of that and they said it, it, it went through the whole list of what it was. And at the bottom it says, are you now willing to get the vaccine, to which, of course, we all went no. Um, I don't know why they thought that that little t teaching session would help us, but anyway. And then the next thing that kept occurring was we didn't get discreet letters. We would walk into our, our lockers uh, for the morning shift, and the letters would be pasted on, on all the people who did not weren't vaccinated, saying that we had till October 9th, 2021. When were you put on leave? Um, I was never put on leave. I was just never got any shift after October 9th and was requested not to return. And ultimately, what happened to your nursing license? Uh, I, I had my nursing license for a while, but now um, it, it is, um, I relinquished it because um, I, I turned 65 on February 4th. And um, in order for me to get back into nursing, in case they open the door again, I would have to go through remedial stuff, more work, courses, all that kind of stuff to get up and running again. So the time period for me has, it, it's not possible for me to work in nursing again. 
Did you consider uh, trying to find work in other areas of healthcare? I did, and every area of healthcare I was um, not allowed to. I wasn't allowed to work there. And you weren't allowed to work because of your vaccination status, just to exactly. make it clear. Yeah. Okay. Uh, ultimately, uh, what kind of what did you do to uh, support yourself? Um, I was ten weeks, uh, ten sorry, ten months unemployed. I withdrew money from my RRSP. I withdrew money from my tax-free savings. I canceled all my magazines, my my uh, cable TV, anything I could scale down on. I started selling my stuff on marketplace, and made it through the ten-month period. And I was. Constantly applying for jobs locally in Coburg and Port Hope and not getting any response to which I felt it probably was due to the fact that I was overqualified for minimum wage jobs and that I was um, too old. Do you regret your decision? Do I regret my decision to not get the vaccine? Absolutely not. I think it was the right thing to do for me. And um, if you can make recommendations on how, let's say specifically the circumstances and the management of the situation could have been better handled in long-term care, what would some of those recommendations be? In regards to myself or in regards to the patients and all that? Um, you're welcome to comment on the patients, but since you were staff there with respect to management of the staff. Right. Um, I think that, uh, first of all, um, nursing, I've been a nurse for 40 years. So in a 40-year period, we, we all know that we're working under stressful situations, always short-staffed, and they were constantly calling you to come in, and you rarely had a day off. Um, but that just meant that when we were short-staffed, then the patients got less, less um, attention. Frequently, if it was their bath day, for example, they would skip it, and hope that the next day they'd have enough staff to actually get the person bathed and cleaned and stuff. So that was, that was kind of tough. Um, but that's a, that's a normal part. But I found it really hard to, when I began to talk to other nurses about the things I had been learning about COVID and why I had chosen not to vaccinate, <clears throat> I got, I went to work and there were two days in a, in the week and I, that I had shifts and all the others were gone. Normally I look at my schedule and the whole entire thing is full. I phoned up my manager and I said, what's going on? And she said, we heard you were going to the rally in Ottawa. And I went, excuse me? I, you, you were telling people you were going to the rally in Ottawa. I said, I never ended up going, but that was the plan. I just never had enough time off to go. And that, under that condition, because of that, that I wanted to go to the rally, they um, took away my shifts. Even though they were short-staffed, they still took away my shifts as kind of a punishment. And then once they discussed it with me, they brought all the shifts back because I never did, I, well, I didn't go while I was working with them. After I got uh, let go, I, I definitely went to Ottawa just for the day to see. I wanted to see for myself what it was really like, what was really happening up there. Is it fair to say that you'd never lost shifts before because of uh, political beliefs? No, never, no, no. Certainly sounds unusual. Yeah, it does. We'll see if the commissioners have any questions for you. 
Sure. Thank you for coming down. Um, are you aware of the adverse reactions reporting system in Canada, sometimes called CAFIS? No, I'm not. Do you know, you, you mentioned that, that you, you noticed some of the, um, the residents in the uh, long-term care facility were having soreness of arms and, and, and whatnot. Do you know whether anyone was making reports to higher-ups about those, uh, those uh, reactions to the health uh, department? Or? Well, those, those issues were, were um, spoken of from shift to shift. I don't think they were ever really documented or ever really um, cataloged in any way, shape, or form. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned um, the conditions in the facility with the lockdowns. There were lockdowns for various reasons, and, and the patients were, were in their rooms. They couldn't get out, they, so they had no social interaction. Did the province of Ontario provide any oversight, any regulation, any inspection of these facilities to see the conditions that were going on and, and to make comment, or did they provide any guidance to lockdowns and social interactions? Well, um, I, I had overheard that there was a ministry person in the office with the director of care. I happened to be in the other room on the computer, and I heard them talking, but I didn't specifically hear what they said, but it was obvious that the director of care had to do what the ministry was telling them, and I was quite surprised that uh, the director of care had no response, but kind of like a yes sir response. I understand that, that the direction of how to lock down was there, but did anyone from the government come into the facility to actually check with their eyes to see the condition of the patients and what the effects of those lockdowns were on those residents? I'm not sure. I saw um, that lady come, but I wasn't sure if she was there to assess the residents or the conditions or anything. I'm not sure what she was there. Do you, do you have any idea how many staff in the facility um, were treated similar to you? In other words, lost shifts or, or left the facility due to this issue? Um, in, uh, there weren't a huge amount of staff in there. It was a 55 patient uh, unit. But when I, when I was asked to leave, there were also at least four others who were asked to leave. And in an institution that small, that was a big chunk. Well, you, you had mentioned earlier that you're always understaffed, and if you lost four staff due to this issue, how would that have affected the care this, the residents were getting? I'm sure it was uh, um, even worse than usual. I know before I left, I had to train the person who was going to replace me. I know for a fact that these um, PSWs um, especially were fast-tracked in their um, coming to Canada actually and also fast-tracked in the education in order to work as a PSW which made the staff who were already PSWs and working their, their butt off angry because they were getting so much more pay and they didn't even have to take the long courses that they had to take to become PSWs. They were six months online course, and then they were in the building. So are you, are you describing a somewhat toxic situation in the facility with staff angry, short of staff, patients locked into their rooms for days or weeks on end? Yes, definitely, yes. And the stress on the, on the staff was pretty, uh, 
you could feel it in the air and they were always being called to come back in on their days off and so there was a lot of resentment a lot of like stressed out peoples it was just too much to to cover everything thank you very much you're welcome good morning i just have a couple of quick questions on the online course who was the author that would have uh, been responsible for that online course the author yeah who was uh, was it the government was it... i think it was a government um form that our little course that we had to, to take if it wasn't government then it would have been by the the owners of the the nursing care facility so was it accredited do you remember i'm sorry was it an accredited education piece or was it just something that had been put together no it was just something they put together so that we could become more informed and uh, be convinced that it would be better for us to take the vaccine and not take it and my second question is i believe through the you may not have been working at this time but i believe the media had this uh, blitz in the middle of covid about uh, the military having to go into nursing homes did you experience or hear any of any information about that i heard about that but that was more in the mississauga area and i work in the east i work okay. i live in coburg so i work nursing homes in the region that region um i heard about the the um the military coming in and saying how bad the situation was and i i can tell you just from my own experience i worked most of my career in hospitals and in uh with the VON community and the end of my career, I've been doing long-term care and it is not, um, it is not a good picture. I think it, I went to 10 to 12 nursing homes as an agency nurse. And I can tell you that probably there were three good ones and the rest were all just uh, struggling, I think. And the patients were not getting top quality care at all. So. Thank you. You're welcome. <coughs> Thank you very much for attending okay. today. Thank you. I'll invite Mr. Buck. Mr. Buckley will be uh, examining the next witness. So our wit next witness today is Mr. Tom Marazzo. And Tom, I placed a couple of sheets of paper on that uh, thing there for you that will be exhibits. Okay. And I'll, Got it. for starting, ask you if you will state your full name for the record and then spell for the record your first and last name. Okay. Thomas James Marazzo, T H O M A S M A R A Z Z O. And Mr. Marazzo, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth today? I do. Now, my understanding is, is that you were a combat engineer for the Canadian Armed Forces for 25 years. I was, uh, I started off in the reserves in high school. I was infantry and then after I graduated college in 90, uh, I joined the regular force in 1998 as a combat engineer officer until uh, 2015. And then uh, you have a bachelor's degree um, Basically in software, that's yes. what it's called. But yes. And then you went on and got a Master of Business Administration. Yes. And when COVID-19 appeared on the scene, 
You were a teacher at uh, Georgian College in Barrio, Ontario. Yes. Now, <clears throat> what happened as COVID came along in 2020? Um, the world lost its mind and its ability to do basic critical thinking. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of was keeping an eye on this from afar. I knew something was up. I was watching what was happening in China and around the rest of the world. And I was closely listening to the, the way the media was presenting it. Um, so I think immediately I was skeptical of what the public was being told. And, um, you know, when the media says, look left, I always look right. Uh, because in my experience, they really just can't be trusted. And so I was teaching in class full time for about six months. And then six months into it, we, uh, COVID hit and the first lockdown happened. And so we had to transition to online learning for that. I was teaching online for the next 18 months. But I could see that there was this, uh, with the other post-secondary, so Western University implemented a vaccine passport, uh, and then Seneca College implemented a, a passport as well. And so you were seeing these stories of students all over the place. Um, they weren't even allowed to register for online learning if they didn't get the vaccine. So there was a lot of, um, my entire time with, with COVID, I nothing made sense, nothing at all. In terms of what the media narrative was, they were scaring the crap out of the public uh, at every possible opportunity. And they were always talking about case count, case count. And it's like, so what? Case count is a meaningless number. It's just meant to fill people with fear. And for me, it just didn't seem to have an effect other than I was baffled by the, uh, the, illogical aspect you know it was meant the case count numbers were only meant to scare the public right now <clears throat> eventually because you kind of intimated you saw something coming so uh, eventually a vaccine mandate was imposed am i yes. right yes so tell us uh tell us how that came about and how you responded to that well i had um been sent a text from one of the coordinators of the programs that I was teaching in, and he said, you know, Seneca just implemented a passport. Uh, and when Seneca College does it, usually the other colleges follow suit. Uh, and I had been stockpiling as much money as I could, knowing that I was probably going to be affected by this. And so students registered for school. And then just before school started, the president put out an email um, basically threatening people with very strong, aggressive language saying, you know, that if you didn't get this vaccine, you were no longer employed. And so uh, at the time, I was a member of an organization called Police on Guard, and I was eligible because I was retired military. But uh, there had been some of the police officers uh, that were retired were in the group that were actually sharing a lot of um, a lot of the, the, the case law and uh, putting together some really helpful documents. So I went in, I researched it. And when the president sent out the email threatening everybody's employment, um, I basically did, you know, a reply all. So I copied the president, the vice president, the uh, VP of HR, all the deans that I personally knew and as many faculty as I could find. 
And this this actually ran into the hundreds, didn't it? Oh, it was, yeah, it was a couple hundred for now, sure. Um, I'm so, I apologize to the audience. I can't draw this uh, this document up because of the format I copied it in. But the commissioners, I've given you two pages, and the first one is Mr. Morazzo's uh, response, which is Exhibit TO-17 in these proceedings. And, and Mr. Morazzo, you have a copy. That is the email that you you sent in response. Yes, and so you know my intention was to basically say. How is it exactly that you believe you're going to get around all of this law, all of these specific laws? And um, there was no response right away. But then one faculty member just replied and hit a reply all and said, please take me well, off your now, distribution list. Okay. So, so you send this email and mm -hmm. one person replies first yes. saying, please take you off the email. Yes, take me and, off your distribution list, yes. And this was a reply all, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, so what, what happened after the first? So then shortly after, another faculty, same thing, please take me off your distribution list, please take me off. And so after about the 10th, one of the other faculty said, uh, as much as I'd love to you know, see you guys um, read all your comments, could you just hit reply? So I don't have to spend all day long deleting all of your emails. And, and this was an email sent, as you say, to several hundred people. Yes, several hundred. So um, one of the faculty responded to him and said, no, I think we should stand together in unity against this guy. And um, with, then immediately after, they all jumped on board, including the dean of the faculty I worked in, the coordinator, some of my other colleagues that I had worked closely with uh, teaching. They, every five to 10 seconds, I was getting another email, please take me off your distribution, please take me off your distribution. So I, after a while, I just stopped looking at it uh, because I was getting these things coming in every you know, five to 10 seconds with so, another person. So basically what this was is because you were taking a stand mm -hmm. and basically questioning the legality of the vaccine mandate, all of the people in this email chain made a point of publicly shaming you. Yes. How yep. did that make you feel? Um, I was kind of, at first it didn't bother me too much, but then I was starting, I, I was actually quite shocked um, because these are the types of people that like to profess that they, they teach their, their students critical thinking. But yet, I outlined all of this legislation in front of them, and it didn't seem like any of them actually had the ability to exercise critical thinking. And so I was, I was embarrassed, actually. I was embarrassed for them. And I know that sounds maybe a little bit arrogant on my part, where you know I'm the lone person criticizing the vast majority of the, the faculty, but... Uh, I kind of laid it all out for them. All they had to do was take a look at it. And instead, what they did is they went with groupthink and their own fear. And they just started piling on one person who's standing alone, who was, who was waving a warning sign for them. They didn't care. They were just trying to virtue signal to the dean that they were on board with this stuff. No, but personally, how did it make you feel? So you felt embarrassed for them basically in, in having to do this virtual, virtue yeah. signaling. 
But how did it make you feel that basically, you know, one after another was participating in an act designed to shame you publicly? I think I, I transitioned very quickly to surprise, to shock. I was a little bit angry that uh, not one of them had the courage to actually back me up. Like there was a, there was a, a couple of them that sent me private emails saying, hey, I understand, good. But they weren't going to come forward. They weren't going to stick their neck out. They were perfectly happy to see me stick my head out. So I was, I, to be honest, I started to get quite angry about it, that uh, I wasn't getting any support from any of them. I mean, just the law of large numbers. I should have got somebody doing a reply all and saying, wait a minute, maybe this guy's got a point. Maybe we should be discussing this. And Nothing. And so let's just put this into context. I mean, we're basically talking about faculty members mm -hmm. at a university is that right? Yes. So these or will be a college. Yeah. Okay, a college. But these will be people with master's degrees and PhDs that have been taught to think critically, mm -hmm. and they are your colleagues. Yes. You're one of them, and some of them will be your friends. Mm -hmm. Did any single one of them stand up publicly for you? No, not one. <clears throat> now. Getting back then, so you send this email and you're publicly shamed. How did Georgian College respond to your email? So I was summoned to a virtual meeting. Uh, I, first off, I was ordered to remove the email um, by the VP of HR. Um, but I didn't see his email till later on and didn't matter anyway because he had directed the IT department to take down my email. And um, so then I was summoned to a meeting on the Friday. This is the first week of school. So by the first Friday, classes already started. And um, that Friday I was summoned to a meeting, asked some questions, and then told that I would have to come back to another meeting Monday morning. Monday morning, uh, I believe 8 or 9 a.m., first thing in the morning. And uh, the union rep was there. The union president was actually on the call but you'd never know it because he didn't say a word. And uh, I was informed that I was being fired for cause. So I was fired and uh, I haven't had a job in since that time. Now, uh, David, can I have you, I've got on this computer a copy of that termination letter. If you can pull that up in the screen for the online audience to see. And commissioners, you have a paper copy in front of you. So <clears throat> Mr. Marazzo, so you've sent an email, and my understanding is, and I'm just reading from the, the second paragraph, your actions are in violation of the college's employee code of conduct, the appropriate use of email and anti-spam compliance policy, and the information technology acceptable use procedure. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have a student or anyone complain about your behavior? No, all my, all my teaching ratings were really high. So basically, you were getting fired for, by your email, basically stating that there are other laws and things like that should be, that should be considered before a mandate is imposed. Yes. <clears throat> now, I want to segue into another topic, because you found yourself involved in the trucker's convoy. Yes. Can you tell us how, how you became involved and what your role was? Um, I was following it 
just like everybody else on social media and um, through a friend of a friend basically I ended up on a phone call with a guy named James Botter who's with Canada Unity and the intention of that call was I, I thought was just to give some advice because as a former military um, this was quite a normal you know this would have been easy for anybody uh, with some experience in the military and so I had taken the call with the expectation that I would just give some advice and within 15 minutes of that call uh, James had just said can you would you mind just coming to Ottawa because I was only uh, in the Kingston area so for me to go to Ottawa is maybe a two-hour drive so within three hours of that phone call uh, I found myself in Ottawa and I walked into this conference room with a whole bunch of truckers the uh, a couple of Ottawa police and uh, next thing you know I was there for 22 days. And that was to the very end. Of to the, the very end, yes. And my understanding is, is that you became a spokesperson for the truckers' convoy. Yeah, on, on occasion. I, I didn't do too much of the, um, the, the public stuff, and it was never my intention. That just kind of, as I, the longer I stayed at the convoy, the more my role started to evolve. Now, you came after a couple of days, so my understanding is, is that that trucker's convoy lasted for 24 days in Ottawa. Yes. And you were there for 22 days. Yes. I, can, yeah, two days after is when I arrived. Can you share with us, because um, some of us weren't there, and, and I don't think we appreciate the size, the number of Canadians that got involved. Um, can you share with us basically the size, including on weekends? Well, the weekends was the big swell. That is when the general public that were not working during the week would come and bring their families, bring their kids, uh, and participate in the activities there in Ottawa. It was like Canada Day. Every weekend was like Canada Day. And, you know, at one point I would estimate that there was probably 100,000 people that showed up on one of the weekends. We had a stage uh, sound system and people were giving speeches. There was lots of activities. So... The influx on the weekends was much greater than during the week, but I would think on, on weekends you were looking at about 100,000 people would come into the uh, down to Wellington. And, uh, of course, then there was truckers. That, you know, I, Finding the exact number of truckers was always a big challenge for everybody. But there was, um, if you just look at some of the video, you could see there's a lot of trucks that showed up to Ottawa. And we're talking thousands. We're, not, we're talking trucks in the thousands. Well, that originally traveled across Canada, yes. Uh, but when they arrived into Ottawa, I would estimate somewhere around a thousand in the whole Ottawa region. Because there was trucks that were out at various different locations, not just in the downtown core. Now, <clears throat> being involved, because you were involved with the leadership, and that's how you became a spokesman at times. Mm -hmm. What was your understanding of the goal of the truckers convoy well after over two years of all these protests that were going on across the country everybody who protested was literally being either ignored or arrested for protesting and so when the mandates came out uh, for the truckers the truckers took it upon themselves and said we're ending these federal mandates. That is our objective, is to go to Ottawa and make them listen because they haven't been for two years. So the goal is to end the federal mandates and all of them. It was the mask mandates, vaccine mandates, lockdowns, you name it, uh, travel restrictions, 
uh, this cross-border issue. So for the truckers, they they were allowed as unvaccinated to travel into the United States, drop their load. But when they came back, they were required to, to quarantine for 14 days. So how do you do a cross-border trip and then come back and have to quarantine in your home, place yourself under house arrest uh, for 14 days and still expect to make a living? So they couldn't do it. And uh, it was a significant portion of the actual industry. Now... <clears throat> My understanding is this protest is right on Parliament Hill. I mean, it's at the seat of government. Yes. And you're, you're telling us they wanted to have a dialogue mm -hmm. with the federal government. Um, am I correct? You basically did a public statement asking the Prime Minister to speak to you and the truckers. Yes, several times. And you, um, am, am I correct that even the Ontario Provincial Police called on the federal government to speak to the truckers. Yes, there was an um, engagement plan that was drafted by the OPP, and I heard this testimony directly from the person who wrote it. Uh, I believe he's an acting inspector, Marcel Baudouin, or Bowden, um, of the OPP. He's the liaison team leader uh, for the OPP. And he had drafted an engagement plan. It was presented to the federal government the day before they invoked the Emergencies Act. So they were briefed and on the 13th of February, and the next day they invoked it and it completely ignored any form of engagement. Now, I assume, I mean, we've got on weekends 100,000 people on Parliament Hill. We have <coughs> trucks all around Parliament Hill and in other parts of Ottawa. This is going on for... 24 days, I assume as a spokesperson who actually had been authorized to issue a public statement for dialogue, that all of your time was taking up uh, speaking with the federal government um, to kind of deal with these issues. That and, would have been great. And you laugh. So tell, yeah, us, well, tell us what really happened there. The highest ranking non-elected person I ever spoke to was Steve Kanellakis. He was the city manager of Ottawa. The uh, And I met with him on two separate occasions, but um, we never met with the mayor. Um, the highest ranking police officer I ever sat in a room with was an inspector, uh, and he didn't really participate much in, in that meeting. But my day-to-day -day conversations were no higher than the rank of sergeant with the Ottawa police. Okay, so I, I just want to focus us because this likely is the largest protest, well, definitely in my lifetime, mm -hmm. and likely in your lifetime. And the, the object is to have a dialogue with, with the federal government. Did a single federal government person speak with you or the truckers? The member of parliament, the conservative member of parliament for Tamara Leach's uh, riding, I believe, had a conversation with her. But they're not the government. They're just as powerless to, to get anything going on with the federal, uh, with the liberals, uh, the government in power to, like, there was nothing. Um, we never met with any of the liberal party. Um, we were trying to back channel and maybe get some help from the conservatives to, to arrange some sort of meeting. Never happened. We never, and we expected actually, because the liberal government had had a previous history of, engaging with other protests 
And again, the OPP testified at the Public Order Emergency Commission that their expectation was that the Liberal government was actually going to reach out and talk to us. And they didn't. There was literally no dialogue between us and the federal government or the Ontario government. And that would be for the full 24 days? The full time. Before the Emergency Act is invoked, not yes. a single dialogue with the federal government? Nothing. Nothing at all. Um, what is your worst memory? Uh, well, let me just back up. What, what was your impression? You were there for 22 days, um, and we've heard that the Prime Minister is basically disparaged. Uh, we've seen you know, pictures of Nazi flags, um, just a few handful. And a, a media person spoke to that yesterday. But um, what was your observations of how people were behaved and... and um, basically the entire atmosphere and behavior. How would you characterize it? Well, up until the last two days, the 18th and 19th of February, up until those two days, everything really was more of a festival party type of an atmosphere. And people were being very responsible in, uh, you know, for example, we shoveled the roads, we shoveled the sidewalks, we collected garbage and occasions we did first aid. We always kept safety lanes open, despite what any media outlet tells you. We worked really hard to make sure that EMS was always able to get through any portion, and they did. And there was testimony of that as well, that we actually accomplished that. But overall, it was a friendly environment. And it was, if you ever even talk to some of the people that went there, it's a constant theme that it was such a, uh, a, a truly Canadian experience and it didn't matter over ethnicities, races, religions, creeds, anything. It was ordinary Canadians from east to west that were there being Canadians. And they were putting, a, putting their foot down and saying, you know, we're going to be here. Uh, we're going to be nonviolent. We're going to be peaceful. We're going to try to make the best of a situation because we'll be here for a long time. But we're not going to be aggressive. We're not going to be violent. You know, we were even donating food to homeless shelters because we had so much support that we were sharing it within the community. Um, we were not a threat to businesses. We were actually asking for business owners to open up so that we could shop in their businesses. We were trying to support that community. But overall, our intention was never to go and put pressure on the residents of Ottawa. It was just the government. And that's what we were there to do. And, um, you know, it was a very, very peaceful, very fun experience for a lot of people. Very fun. Now, you understood that um, the Emergency Act was invoked. And my understanding is, is you um, basically gave a public statement and uh, you had a dialogue with the OPP to basically permit, you know, a staged withdrawal without the need for what we all witnessed. Mm -hmm. um, thank goodness, because people could live stream. Yeah. So on the 19th, the morning of the 19th, I had a meeting in my hotel with uh, several truckers that were in various leadership positions. And we made the decision to recommend to the truckers to peacefully withdraw from the city. And we chose that language very specific because we wanted to obviously instill the idea that we're still going to be peacefully uh, interacting with the police. Despite the day before where the police were um, exceedingly aggressive, 
um, in, in the whole situation had been violent. And so even on the second day, we were emphasizing peace, but we were recommending that the convoy withdraw from the city. And on 10, at 10.03 that morning, on the 19th of February, I made a call to the OPP. Uh, I was pretty emotional about it because I had just finished watching a lot of the video footage on the news of people getting beaten. Uh, and I was there when uh, Candace was run over by the horse and the other man, I was standing 15 feet away. So I'd witnessed this violence myself. And I wasn't too happy about the veterans getting beaten by the, uh, the police as well at the National War Memorial. And so I made the call to the OPP and I said, look, we're recommending that they leave, but you need to move the concrete barriers and allow us to get fuel into the trucks because we were boxed in. We couldn't actually move. We couldn't leave if we wanted unless people literally walked out of the city. So we said, you need to move the concrete barriers and you need to let us get fuel into the trucks so they can drive out. Um, but we were recommending that the drivers, the truck owners leave the city. And he okay. said, yeah, I'll pass it up the chain and uh, nothing happened. No concrete barriers moved and people got, uh, were continuously beaten and arrested. Okay, so I just, I just want to be perfectly clear. So you, you were personally involved in trying to make arrangements with the police for the truckers to withdraw their trucks from downtown Ottawa. Yes. And this was all done in an effort to forestall unnecessarily unnecessary violence against Canadians that you had witnessed the day before. Yes. And there was no answer or no response. No. I we were starting to see some of the leadership of the convoy get arrested anyway. So by that point Tamara had already been arrested, Chris Barber had been arrested. Uh, I think Danny Bulford who's retired RCMP was already arrested and in custody at that time. And uh, which was why on the last day I was the one who gave the public statement saying we're because I was the last one left um, that the public would recognize and, you know, maybe listen to. Right. Now, you spoke about um, <clears throat> what happened at the, the war memorial. Um, can you describe that? And I'm going to play a video and there's a person in the video and I want you to share with us. Um, your knowledge and relationship with that person, but please explain to us in detail what who was at the war memorial and what occurred. So the as the convoy went on, more and more Canadian military veterans, in a lot of cases combat veterans, started to arrive in Ottawa, and they spent time mostly concentrated at the National War Memorial because for a time there was a big steel fence around the memorial. And the veterans were quite upset about this because it wasn't being cleaned off with snow. It was being kind of neglected. So I was there as well when the veterans took down the steel fence. The police came in. They, they thought that the, the monument was kind of, you know, not being taken care of. But as soon as they came in, they saw the veterans. We said, look, we're going to put a 24 and 7 guard on the memorial. And they did. So the veterans for two weeks had a 24 and 7 vigil on the National War Memorial protecting it. And that's kind of the ground they, they typically stuck to. But when on after the Emergencies Act, when the police started to, to do their raiding, the veterans formed a wall and they linked arms. And 
basically said, we're not going to move off this, this piece of ground. Uh, they're not going to fight, but they linked arms and they were resisting, peacefully resisting. But one of the individuals, uh, Chris Deering, is, uh, he was a wounded Afghanistan vet. Uh, he was, uh, two other of his colleagues were immediately killed. He was blown up in a, in a LAV-3 IED explosion that sent the vehicle 100 feet into the air, flipped over, the turret fell out, Chris fell out. He was badly, badly injured, um, luckily not killed. But he was there. He arrived, and um, one of the veterans told the police that, look, when you come up, this guy here, he's in bad shape. He's a wounded veteran. He's in really bad shape. Well, they rolled through, and at one point, they, uh, they just grabbed Chris right out of the line, right out of the chain, and uh, two of the police started beating him on the ground. So I'm just going to stop you. So Chris is a, <coughs> a war veteran that yes. served this nation in Afghanistan. Yes. And he witnessed two of his fellow soldiers uh, being killed in action. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he himself was wounded and has problems to this day because of that. He has many physical problems. He's not uh, very employable uh, right now. But, uh, you know, he's, he's not a large person. Um, but he was certainly not a threat to any of the large police officers. And if you show the video, you'll see the difference and, in and, size. And I will. But before I do, I, I saw some other videos and I saw that Chris was wearing three medals. Yes. on his jacket that don't show up in this video. So he's a decorated war veteran. Yes. So and I'm just going to play this video, and it's short. I'm going to play it twice because it's so short. But I just, I just want the people of Canada to see how we treat dec decorated war veterans. To be when, clear, too, all of the veterans that were there were wearing their berets and their medals. So they were easily recognized as Canadian veterans. And, and the police were told that in any event. They were told. And, and you told us they were told that, that Chris um, actually has some physical issues. Yeah, specifically Chris was pointed out. So in this video, Chris <clears throat> is basically the gentleman in the brown jacket being dealt with by the police. Yes. So can I have uh, the screen? Thank you. So what, um, what was your experience of the police uh, during those last two days? Very, very mixed. Um, at one point I was there, like I mentioned, I was there on the line when uh, the horse came through and uh, ran over the two people. I remember there was a large group of OPP standing there and I'd, I walked over and I was looking at them 
And I, I kind of started yelling at them saying, thank you. Thank you. You got to be proud of yourself for stealing the future of uh, my kids and your kids too. And my, they looked at me, um, they looked at me as if though, you know, if, if I could shoot this guy and get away with it, I'd drop him right now. That was the impression I got. I didn't see people that had any shame in their eyes. I saw people that were getting geared up to go in and, and beat people. That's what I saw. Um, so I had very mixed emotions because on my one-on-one -on -one dealings with specific individual officers, it was very good, not all. And then when we got to that, and what's interesting is none of the police that we were interacting with the previous three weeks were the ones that were on that line. They brought in new people from other jurisdictions that had no ties, no relationships, hadn't been in Ottawa to come in and, and start uh, mass arresting people. And as my final question before I allow commissioners or give commissioners the opportunity to question you is uh, what happened to your bank accounts and uh, what was the effect of that? My bank account was frozen along with about approximately 280 Canadians. I was not informed that it would be. I was not informed that it was frozen. And I was never told when it would be returned to me. Um, it was credit cards, banks, joint accounts, um, any financial asset that I had. And my ex-wife was notified by her financial institution that they were looking at hers. It's recently been disclosed in the media that um, all of our information was shared globally to banks, including China, India, France, UK, Wall Street. Um, all of our bank, all of our personal information was shared, and they were told if you're doing banking with these people, uh, cease doing banking with them. Now, to be clear, there was never a warrant for my arrest. I was never charged. I've never been convicted. My son has a, a heart condition. And if we didn't have cash, we would not have been able to purchase his heart medication. And so you had to have cash to actually buy this. And they didn't give any consideration to anything like that. Nothing. There was no information that we knew about. Next thing you know, rumors started that bank accounts were frozen. And, you know, I was one of them. And on top of that, now I'm being sued for $400 million. Uh, for my participation in the convoy. Well, <clears throat> welcome to your uh, charter-protected right for freedom of expression and, and yeah. uh, freedom to assemble. So um, I'll open it up for the uh, commissioners if they have any questions for you, Mr. Morazzo. Mm Good morning. I just would like to go back for a moment to the faculty union. And I see that in your email that you have, have listed a number of legislative pieces. Usually unions stand up for the minority voice to some extent. So I'm just wondering, in this case you said the, the union member remained silent. Mm -hmm. Did you have any thoughts about that or any follow-up conversations with the union that would suggest that they were silent for a reason or being silenced by the administration? There was nothing offered. I was in a pre-meeting uh, before all this had happened. Um, there was several people on the call. And I remember specifically asking the union president in this call 
um, would they be resent, uh, representing, if, if something like this were to occur, would they re represent us as individuals or would they look at it almost like a majority rules kind of a thing? And um, his response was to the negative that um, he did say, you know, we'll take it as a case by case. Uh, but then he immediately shut me down and told me that that question was inappropriate to, to ask in that in that meeting. And um, one of the other people participating, a faculty member, asked me a question about my original question. And he shot her down and said, that's inappropriate for you to talk to the other <coughs> faculty member in this Zoom meeting. So uh, I did go to arbitration after, but uh, that's, a, that's a whole other story. I did lose the arbitration because I couldn't attend the arbitration. Um, but my feeling was that the union um, did, I, I did threaten to go, um, what is it, DF, um, I can't remember the acronym for when you don't feel that the union is actually representing you. I did suggest to them that I was going to do that. I did indicate to the union that I was considering suing the college. They said you can't because of the binding arbitration uh, or sorry, the collective agreement. And I said, well, I'm actually considering going after you guys first so that I can then go after the school. And I did have lawyers that were gearing up to it uh, to do that, but you know, I've only got so much bandwidth and, uh, I'm pretty exhausted after a year and a half of this. Um, so on that particular issue, I've walked away, but I think there was a few lawyers that really would have liked to pursue that. Thank you. Good morning, Mr. Morazzo. Thank you for coming and telling your story. I have a few questions. Um, the first is I'm quite familiar with that area in front of Parliament on Wellington Street where the War Memorial is. And I'm assuming, like in most places in Canada, when I look around, there are video cameras everywhere. Even in this hotel, when I'm in the, in the elevator, there's a, there's a video camera watching me. Most of the videos that I have seen that were related to the, to the convoy were uh, videos shot by individuals with phones or, or whatever. Do you have any idea what what happened to or where the video from, I'm, I'm, uh, I have no idea how many, but what had to have been hundreds if not thousands of, of security cameras in the area recorded? Yeah, that was an issue that we had raised right at the beginning. Uh, when the lawyer or the legal team showed up from the JCCF, uh, we started to inquire as to why are all of these CCT cameras turned off? Why are they not, uh, there's no public access? So because some of those cameras uh, all across the country, which is really interesting because all across the country, there are zones that have CCT along the highways. And as the, the larger portions of the convoy were traveling across Canada, they were shut off. And so when the convoy actually arrived into the city of Ottawa, all those CCT cameras were no longer uh, streaming for public consumption. So all of those cameras were completely turned off, which was really bizarre to us because we, we were kind of anticipating that in the future we may need to see some of that footage. It's, it was never um, activated, which is bizarre. Um, you also mentioned an incident uh, with regard to the horses and the trampling of one of the protesters. Um, are you aware of any type of um, 
investigation that's been carried, independent investigation has been carried out of the police actions and or their messaging that was going on at that time surrounding that incident? I'm not aware of any investigation into that incident. Are you aware of any other internal or public investigations of the actions of the police um, uh, during the, uh, the last two days of the, um, the protest? No, I'm not. One last question concerning your statement about the 280 Canadian bank accounts who were frozen. I'm assuming that you, and this is none of my business, you can tell me that if you wish, but I'm assuming that you are not a, you're not using digital currencies and you're using ordinary money in bank accounts and, and ordinary uh, identification cards uh, yourself, like most Canadians? Yes, and I'm absolutely against digital ID as somebody who has experienced the the current mechanisms to go in and attack people's uh, financial assets right now, even without digital ID. So digital ID is a step beyond what I, I think every Canadian in this country should be um, outright rejecting the idea of these CBDCs, any form of digital ID, any form of currency like that in that manner. Uh, I think that Canadians should keep an eye on that every single day and get updates on it because um, even under the current system, it, it took nothing for the government without any criminal uh, charges to completely remove my ability to f access my own financial assets. So I carry cash now, but like I haven't worked in 18 months, so I don't have a lot of it, but yeah. But the, the government didn't act alone. I'm assuming that your your bank account wasn't with the government of Canada. It was with a private institution. I'm assuming that your credit cards weren't with the government of Canada. It was a private institution. How, how, how do you account for the incredible cooperation that was between the banks, the government, the credit card companies, employers, whoever else was involved with that? Well, that's an interesting question because it wasn't just the banks that were ordered to seize the, the accounts. It was also the insurance industry as well as, um, I think, more the equity market, like the, the big trading firms. Uh, everybody was ordered to do it. It was the insurance company, the life insurance companies uh, and stuff and house insurance and all that that said, no, we're not doing that. So it's interesting because there's this kind of thought that the banks were compelled to do it legally. And if they didn't, they'd be in breach. But... The same order was given to the other uh, forms of financial institutions, but they pushed back because if you would have frozen or taken away or removed somebody's house insurance, then they'd be in default of their mortgage. And so they pushed back and said, no, we're not doing it. And it's funny because the bank industry has more money than God. I think they can afford some lawyers to have tied this up for about a week or two until this was settled and not gone after people's bank accounts. But they did it anyway because there's only five chartered banks. Well, no, I guess the credit unions, the credit card companies, they all did it. It was just the two other industries or sectors that didn't do it. But the banks were right on board with it. That's all the questions I have. Thank you very much. Sure. Good. So there being uh, no further questions, we'll let you go. Thank you okay. on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry Thank for you. testifying, Mr. Mazza.
Ms. Jeffrey, can we begin with you stating your full name for the record and then spelling your first and last name for the record? My name is Laura Jeffrey. It's spelled L-A-U-R-A-J-E-F-F-E-R-Y. And do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth today? Yes, absolutely. Now, Ms. Jeffrey, my understanding is, is that you were quite a senior embalmer as far as embalmers in Canada go. I'm the best kept secret in embalming. <laughs> you have been uh, working as a funeral director, and that includes embalming, for 27 years now. Yes. Um, which I did the math, that would mean you started roughly in 1996. I'm an old lady. <laughs> I started practicing law in 1995. Well, so then we, you're an older fellow too. <laughs> we, we share a, a long career. And for the past five years, my understanding is you would average roughly about 170. Uh, uh, yes. I guess, I don't know what you call it. I would embalm I, and care for 170 people that required embalming. I would care for uh, many more that maybe weren't embalming, but I would care for them as well. Right. Now... Right, because if somebody's being cremated, then they don't go through no, an embalming No, that's not person. necessarily true. Okay. It doesn't matter if you're buried or cremated. It depends on what you're doing beforehand. Okay. Now, <clears throat> when COVID came along, yes. my understanding is, is you were uh, working at a place which cared for approximately 600 deceased yes. persons a year? Yes. And um, in a year and a half, so COVID hits, so we must, we're in... I guess, March of 2020, and a year and a half goes by. Yes. Um, and you're still with this organization that deals, cares with roughly 600 deceased persons a year. Yes. How many deaths did you see attributed, Seven. not caused, but attributed to COVID? Seven. And were there other comorbidities involved? Of course, the yes. The oh. routinely, the... COVID cases that I would see would be people that had been suffering dementia for probably quite some time uh, and living in a nursing home facility. And that's fairly typical in the winter. We would see that with any virus or any cold maybe that was going around because those people are very vulnerable. Now, what did you observe about the death rate when COVID swept through this land? Uh, nothing. There's nothing to observe. Nothing okay. changed. So nothing changed? Oh, well, that's not true, actually. So lockdowns create a situation where suicides and drug overdoses escalated dramatically. Now, what about the first lockdown? The first lockdown wasn't as obvious. Um, there may have been the odd, unusual death. But, I mean, that also could have just been normal timing because the first lockdown was the pajama party, right? The second lockdown was the problem. So the second lockdown, the escalation of suicide deaths and drug overdoses was obvious. Okay, Young so, people, middle-aged so people. And as an embalmer, I mean, you're aware of cause of death when, you, when yes. you're treating somebody. I mean, I don't always look, but, I mean, sometimes you're very aware. You can't miss it. Okay. So, um, so the suicides and drug o overdoses, they're yes. obviously increasing in number in the second lockdown. Second lockdown, yeah. Now, my understanding is, is that you had a, a very unique uh, experience with a, a nine-week period with a specific type of death. Can you share with us slowly okay. um, yeah. what, what you witnessed and um, just how unusual that was? 
Okay, so in nine weeks, so one a week for nine weeks, there was middle-aged women that were, you know, well settled in their lives mostly, um, who didn't want to stay on earth anymore. So they left by their choice and their hand. So um, they had children, they had spouses, they had homes, but the second lockdown was too much for them. So they left and we cared for them. And it was awful, to be honest. I, it, like each week one, one, each week one person would do that for no reason. They had children. So that was hard. So, so these are, are mothers with children. Yeah. And average you... people. Average people. Yeah. yeah and... I mean, it could have been me, right? Except they don't have kids. But in a general sense, yes. It, it was a middle-aged woman that had children raging. I found aged like maybe 10 to 20. And then you're looking at that middle-aged woman, right? And she has a home and a husband and children. So that happened. Had you ever in your career seen a, a suicide death no. from that type of person before? No, 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 no. Women don't do that. So this, this just stuck out like a sore thumb. Mm-hmm. Everybody noticed. Now, um, my understanding is, is that you started seeing changes after the COVID-19 vaccines yes. were introduced. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Um, it started in January of 2021 and at first I was seeing an anomaly in what we would call return so you have to understand a little bit about embalming um, embalming we have a vat and then there's a, a, a hose and the vat has a pump in it and what we do is we use the human circulatory system that God gave us so we go into that circulatory system generally we start at the carotid right that's a major artery that goes not to your brain to your brain but also to the top of your heart and it pumps the fluid through and then the return would be people's blood that's pumped back out through the venous system and we open that and let it release and the concept is is to put preservation in and take out what would not preserve a body long term so that we can present a person that is reasonable to them their appearance that they should be right um, so when I was seeing the return I started to notice anomalies in what the return was. So that went on for about three, four months. And the return was um, uh, more viscous. And it's not like I hadn't seen that before, but you didn't see it consistently every single person, right? Now I'm seeing it every single person. You have to explain to us what more viscous is. Viscous, thicker, darker, um, sticky. Uh, and that return, uh, what we ca I call return, it's return blood, right? So that return blood was stickier, uh, thicker, darker, and then I started seeing um, that return blood would have a little, little tiny, tiny pieces of clot in it, and the clot would be like a current jelly clot, but it's tiny pieces, like pinhead sized, but it was almost like polka dot coming out, right? So polka dot pattern, sticky, vixus, more, vix more thicker blood, darker, and then these little pieces of clot that kind of looked like a polka dot pattern sticking to the embalming table, and of course that goes down the drain, right? But it, it was just different. There was something different. I would call it maybe dirty blood if you want to make a sort of a basic example, right? So the blood was dirtier. And, it, and at first, I'm really conscientious, right? So I notice things, and I'm known for that. So at first, I was sort of like, this is weird, right? But 
you can't, like, I'm an embalmer. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor, right? I'm an embalmer. But I notice things. And a lot of people do, and a lot of people don't. But in retrospect, there's an awful lot of people in my profession that are also saying the same thing. So they won't tell you that in person. They certainly wouldn't go public like this. But that's what they're telling me. Did you see um, changes in um, <clears throat> persons that were were dying after the vaccines were oh, introduced? Yes. So um, it was kind of horrifying. Well, it is horrifying. So there was an escalation of middle-aged people's deaths. Like just average Canadian came home from work, had dinner with the family, and died suddenly at home. So that was... Uh, that went on for maybe um, a good month and a half, um, and usually an evening call, so what we call a night call, okay? You would send a, a removal team out to people because they're going into someone's home, right? Um, so they would, they, usually a, a night call or a night removal would be in the middle of the night. Like it might start at one o'clock in the morning, you might get one, you might not, right? And then there was a lengthy period of time, like many weeks, where these middle-aged people were dying kind of like right after dinner at their house with their families present. And they weren't being investigated. They were coming to the funeral home. And, and I was looking at this and I'm like, this should be investigated because it's an unusual death. It's an unexpected death. But no, no, it wasn't investigated. It was almost like they dialed it in and uh, brought the person into our care at, at the funeral home, right? And then uh, didn't didn't worry about them. So uh, there's a couple of things there. So you were telling us that, <coughs> excuse me, typically a call is around 1 a.m. or, you know, after 1 a.m. Yeah, in the morning. That, like middle of the night is when you if, you, if you're going to have a night call happen for some reason, it always seems to be that 1 o'clock in the morning kind of time frame. And prior to the vaccines, uh, roughly how many would calls would you guys have on a night? You could get one in an evening. You could get... Two, you could get none. And then for a while there, it was every night, one, two, even maybe three. Always completed before 11 o'clock at night. So my removal staff were loving that because they weren't getting called out of bed, right? Yeah, they thought that was marvelous. And I was saying, why can't you see the pattern? Like, so everything's a pattern, right? Like, we're not really all that different. None of us are. We think we are, but we're not. So when we die or when we breathe or when we're born, there's patterns. And as soon as you see an anomaly in a pattern, you should be going, why is there an anomaly? But nobody was asking, why is there an anomaly? And then I'm a funeral director and it's not my job to ask, why is there an anomaly? But I was asking, right? Like, why is there an anomaly in my mind? And so I started asking um, my coworkers, like, what did you see? Where were you? What was it like, right? Family there, after dinner. Um, average people, average home. It was an anomaly, a big one, obvious one, but it was like everybody had blinders on, right? So I don't know why nobody noticed, but I noticed. I was rather concerned. Now, my understanding is, is early on you had an experience with a 47-year-old man that it seemed unusual. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so... Um, Okay, so you have someone that's uh, so healthy. Like, you can't miss it. Like, healthy. Like, if that 
gentlemen walked in the room right now, we would all turn our heads and say, my goodness, what a good-looking man, right? Healthy, strong, fit, tall, like huge, healthy person. Gone, right away, just... And um, his family told us that now he was his, his, his death was investigated, and his family told us point blank he died from clots. That's what they were told. And had you ever uh, seen a person that age and that fitness that had died of blood clots? Had I ever seen that before? Yes. Heavens no. No, no, too healthy. No, no, not healthy people. Okay, so that's why that sticks out in your mind, is it was so unusual. It sticks out in a lot of people's minds, I'm sure. Now, did you start seeing any, um, basically, scarring or anything like that on shoulders? Yeah, so... Um, for a long time, uh, people were coming in with that, like a little Band-Aid, right? And I'd kind of go, okay, Laura, it's, it's just a Band-Aid, like ignore it, even though, like it was just unusual deaths with a Band-Aid, right? Right? That's how I'm supposed to look at it, because I'm not a doctor, I'm an embalmer. But the reality is I'm looking at this and I'm going, yeah, yeah, there's a little tiny Band-Aid on everybody's shoulder. So that tells me, I mean, Band-Aids, what, they last, what, two, three days if you're lucky, Right? So that tells me there is a problem. And what were the, the ages of these people coming oh, in? Oh, full range. Full, full range. range. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, at that point, actually, to, to be kind of clear, uh, more clear, at that point, people were, I would say it was that retirement age at that point because I was seeing people that were like maybe 60-something older with the Band-Aid. Now, earlier you were telling us changes that you saw in the blood. Yes. Um, so yeah. you were seeing little clots. Mm -hmm. um, you were seeing color changes. Yes. Um, was there also um, something else happening that you were starting to observe? Yeah, and that's what everybody wants to hear about, right? So uh, first, the, you, like you said, the viscosity changed, which means the color is going to be deeper, right? There's a stickiness. Um, it's been termed dirty blood. There's uh, small microclots in the return. And the odd time, there was like um, a rainbow slick, right? Remember the 80s? They had those uh, rainbow slick dresses or oil slick dresses, I think they called them. You would see that on the odd occasion, which is really weird. And then, um, and nobody can put their finger on it. <laughs> That's the weird thing. So in the spring of 2021, so we're talking April, May, so four or five months after the rollouts of the, of the gene therapy, right? So you would, I, the first time I saw it, I thought it was a parasite. So we have something called drainage forceps. I use a pair, generally speaking, that are about this long and then have a handled port and you can squeeze them like tweezers, right? So curved tweezers, think of them that way. So I, I use that to pull anything out of the way on the venous side of the body, so where you're draining the, the return blood, okay? And all of a sudden, I, I was having trouble. I couldn't understand, right? And then I pulled it out, and I went, and I kind of, you know, you can turn the drainage forcep, and you can see what's in it, right? And I'm sort of like this, and I see something that I thought was a tapeworm, which was weird, because tapeworms shouldn't be in a in a circulatory system, right? And then I'm seeing, like, I'm looking at this, and I'm, 
I'm thinking, is this a parasite? Because a tapeworm's a parasite, that looked like a parasite. And it was at that point maybe, you know, like three, four inches long, right? That's a small one. But at that point, that was a huge one for me because I'd never seen this before. This was a whole new anomaly. So I, I just, I just want to make sure. So, I mean, at that point, you had been uh, embalming for a quarter of a century, 25 yeah. years. Yeah, with and a you, heavy focus on it, yeah. You had never seen anything like that in no. your, your career. <laughs> Absolutely not. So uh, blood clots are sort of in a few categories. There's current jelly blood clots, there's chicken fat blood clots, there's just sludging, which is thicker blood in general, and then there was this anomaly, which I thought was a parasite, but it's not. Um, in what percentage? So this starts in April, May of 2021. Yes. So once you saw your first one, just, how common was it? It just happened. It just kept happening. It was everybody. So there was that. And how how much of this would you find? Over time, it got bigger. So when I first started seeing it, it would be small, right? And then when I started seeing it near the end of my time frame, there, um, if you were to take a a small side plate, like a bread plate and put spaghetti on it and kind of heap it, that could happen, yeah. Yeah, and no. they were longer and longer. And then the integrated jelly clots at the end, of course, adds to the, um, it adds to the confusion. Like, if you, if you were thinking it was a parasite, right, the integrated jelly clots were always at the end. So, so can you explain what you're talking about when yes. you say integrated jelly part? Okay, so Just if so you think of a white, you think of a, have you ever seen those erasers that you push out and they're like a pen, but they're a circle, right? Like, like they're, they're round, cylind cylindrical. So you think of one of those, right? But then it maybe has a couple little tentacles of eraser coming out the end. And then there's a blood clot that is integrated into the end of those tentacles. It felt like it was a parasite that was feeding off a blood clot that it created in the body. So when you think of a parasite, you think because it feeds off of something, right? So then you see the jelly clots at the end of this parasite, parasite, right? You see those and you think, are they feeding off of us as humans, right? Out of our circulatory system. Because they always had the current jelly integrated at the ends. It's nope. something to see. Let's put it to you that way. It's horrific. I'm, I'm going to show some photos yep. now. Um, just so that um, <clears throat> nobody has um, believes that you took these photos. These are photos you basically had a, an embalmer from elsewhere share yes. with you so that for the purposes of this presentation, you would be able mm -hmm. to show us yeah. what you're talking about. So, <clears throat> David, could you pull up this computer screen, please? Yeah, that's so, it. So, can, okay, so am I correct that this is basically what you would you would be pulling out of bodies. I appreciate this isn't a, an embalming that you did, but this nope. is typical of what you would yes. see. Yeah, so that would be, uh, if you were thinking that I started seeing this anomaly in the spring of uh, 2021, then I would have been seeing that uh, closer to the end of the year because that's a fairly large amount. And you can see, like, it's unfortunate it's not stretched out, but you can see where the, the current jelly cots are the darker pieces that are integrated 
into the white fiber mass. That's what I call them. I call them white fiber masses because they are fibrous. They are stretchy kind of, and they're very, you can't break them easily. You need to cut them. The, um, the white fiber uh, branches, so it, it's like an exact duplicate or a cast of the inside of an, ar an arterial system. So, so just so I'm clear, yes. uh, and it, it's clear for everyone else, where are these coming out of? Everywhere. No, no, but what part of the body? Everywhere. 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 But I had to change how I embalm because of these. I have a routine now. Well, I did. I don't have it anymore. I don't have to do it anymore. But I had a routine, right? So I would go into the carotid artery where we always start embalming on an average case, right? I would go into the carotid artery and I would, I wouldn't even try to put the cannula in, which is what comes from the pump, right? The vat. There's a hose and there's a cannula. It's a little crooked piece. It goes into the carotid artery. I wouldn't even try to put it in. Why would I bother? It's plugged anyway. So I would open the carotid artery, artery like normal. I would take a small pair of forceps and go in and pull. And I would find what I call the fish. I named everything because that's, I guess, how I function. But yeah, I would pull what I call the fish. And the fish would be an exact cast of the inside of that person's artery. So it usually was approximately this long. And it sits here. So if we go in here, right, it would be half, half the fish would be towards the head and half the fish would be towards the heart. So then once you pulled the fish out, you could put the cannula in, you would start the embalming. And what I quit doing, quite often we like to back pressure the human circulatory system to allow more fluid to go into the body and go everywhere, like right to the toes, right to the fingers, right? So I would instead uh, not back pressure. I would open the venous system fairly quickly after starting injection and uh, start pulling return because I would get, see what that picture was, right? That's mm -hmm. what I would start to see fairly quickly into the embalming. And I would be looking for it because I knew it was coming. Right? So when you know something's coming, you have to change, you have to change how you care for somebody and you have to change your, your uh, approach and your perspective, right? So embalmings that normally would take a couple hours were now taking like three or four hours because there was and, a lot more work involved. And, and I just wanted to clarify, like when I mm -hmm. say where are these coming from, it's from the circulatory system. Yes. Yes. So, okay. So we're looking at this one. I'm just going to pull up another one. Yeah, that, that's small compared to some of them. But you can see there that those have been washed off. So you're seeing what I call the white fiber mass because they didn't really have a name for it. And if you were to cut those, there's no hole in the middle. They're solid. So they're not, like a lot of people were thinking that they were the lining of the circulatory system. Somehow it was lining. No, 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 no. It's plugging. It's a, it's a, I mean, a technical term would be the clot, right? But I hesitate to use that because people assume it's a blood clot. This is not a blood clot. This is something else. This is something new. And I'm just going to go to the next photo. Yep. Right. Okay, so those are some skinnier ones because you can see that they were branchy and they were down into smaller parts of the circulatory system, so they were closer to the capillary beds. Um, and you can see that 
um, <laughs> the fellow that, that took these pictures and was, was doing the work, right, he has been, um, he has been keeping samples. I didn't do that, but he has. So you can see that the color has changed a little bit in those ones, because if you look, the fluid that they're in uh, may be a bit of a, like a, um, it's type, type of a momming fluid, but it's to maintain, like you can keep them long-term, like samples, right? Right. So I think that's maybe what he was doing there. But if you look, like if, if you look closely, you'll see that the ends of those fiber masses are quite small, very tiny, tiny. And that's because their branch is going into very tiny vessels in the human body. So they're, they're really small. They're everywhere. Now, um, <clears throat> before COVID, I, I expect that there would be a certain number of, of um, autopsies done. Yes. And after COVID, that, uh, I'm asking <laughs> if there was a change yeah. in the number of autopsies. And can you please tell us about that? So the concept was autopsies are too dangerous because there's a virus that's going to kill everybody, right? So we have to not worry about these things. Um, we'll do them if we absolutely have to, but they just didn't do them. So um, it set, I guess it would set the concept in people's minds not to do them, right? So, oh, well, it's pretty obvious why this person passed away. We'll just write that on the paper. So, so just so that I understand, because you're describing um, types of deaths that you hadn't seen before, such as, you know, middle-aged people just dying after supper mm -hmm. in front of their family, so a, a different hour. Right. Um, and so these are unusual deaths. And, and is it your evidence that there were not autopsies being done to explain this change in pattern? Yes. I felt that they were kind of dialed in, right? We'll just sign this piece of paper and dial it in. But again, it goes back to, it has nothing to do with each individual, right? It does, but I mean, each individual is very important, but it has, there's a broader spectrum, right? It's like, if you see an anomaly in a pattern, whose job is it to call that out? Because it's not my job. It's someone that's got a much higher pay grade and much more power than I would. I'm just an embalmer. Why am I here? There should be other people here. But but you do know if a body's been autopsied or not. So oh, very clearly, yes. Yep. Right. So you're right. able to tell us about... So actually, were there fewer autopsies done? Way less, yes. Well, and but you have to put that in perspective too, right? So if I'm talking about a, a change in the pattern, and that change means that I'm seeing deaths that should have been investigated, and they're not being investigated, then really there would have been an escalation in autopsies, not a decrease. So I'm seeing a decrease from the norm, but then we're not in the normal zone because there's more deaths that should have been investigated. So now there should have been more autopsies than previous to COVID. That's the difference. Right. So basically, exactly, we were doing the exact opposite of, of what we should have been doing. Yes. Now, <clears throat> I'm wondering if you can also tell us, you saw a change concerning deaths of babies. Yes, I did. Can you tell us about that? Well, I was used to caring for maybe three to five babies in various stages of gestation. So like the whole pregnancy, I was used to seeing three to five, maybe a month, maybe two, but quite often three to five. Uh, and then that just stopped. There weren't any babies anymore. When did that stop? 
I would say February of 2021 was winter time. Now, you, you did get one that caught your attention coming yes. in after the vaccination started. Can you yes. tell us about that? I don't think I can tell you about that. Okay. I'm sorry. So, that's, no, that's, and that's over fair the enough. line. Yeah. Okay. Um, but would it be fair to say that uh, it was something it, you had not seen anything like that before? No. No, I had not. Okay. So, you're telling us basically. You're having the normal course of events pre-vaccine, three to five babies a month. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and then none. And then none. For how long were there nuns? Up until recently. Okay. So, so like two years, almost. So, yeah. So yeah, for two years. two years, all of a sudden, you're not, you're not receiving a single baby. Keeping in mind, I worked in a very large community, right? And then I have a friend who works in a very large community and he hasn't seen any babies until recently. But then you have to remember, I have a friend who works in a very small community and he saw an escalation, a dramatic escalation. So it's like the small communities got a different memo than the big ones, how to care for babies during COVID. Right. Um, can you expand on that? I, I don't understand. Like, so there's been a change. Where do you, where do you think? So a social is? worker at the hospital would help a family that lost a baby. It wouldn't matter how old the baby, like how far in gestation the baby was. If someone went to the hospital and a woman was having a baby and the baby didn't live, right? Then a social worker in larger hospitals, they have a social worker to assist that family. And the social worker would spend time with the family, time with the baby, give them pictures, give them footprints, and then ask them, would you like us as the hospital to care for the baby? Or would you like, do you have a funeral home that you would like to care for the baby? And then the social worker would liaison between the family and the funeral home so that we would care for the baby. And then that didn't happen anymore for almost two years. But then in a smaller town where they don't have a social worker that liaisons between the family and the funeral home, right? There was an escalation of small babies going through that funeral home for a period of time. I, I have a friend that uh, works in healthcare. Yes. Who has reported to me in Alberta that um, when an expecting mother's child has died in utero, that mm -hmm. rather than the hospital um, taking the child out, that they're being now sent to abortion clinics. Have you heard of anything similar happening in Ontario? I'm an embalmer, not an abortionist. Okay. <clears throat> now, um, my understanding is, is you also saw a change in your clientele that would speak perhaps to fatigue, and I'm wondering if you can share that. Okay, so I think I've told you that I'm well-known for being very conscientious and very visual, right? Like I, I do a visual interpretation and you can learn a lot from looking at a person's body. They can't talk anymore, but their body does. So fingernails, hands, scars, haircut, um, uh, sometimes clothing would give an indication of who a person was, right? And what I started to notice was over time, uh, people that I was caring for and embalming, because I can only speak to the ones that I embalmed, right? Um, but over time, you would see that fingernails that normally had been manicured were splayed, split, broken, and dirty, right? Toenails, same thing. The, the, the pedicure would still be there. Like the nail polish would still be there, but grown out probably about three months, 
and not trimmed, right? You could see that the clothing was loose fitting, unkept, maybe had some food spilled on it and not, not kept tidy. Uh, hair was growing out. You could see maybe they had highlights or something and they had not maintained those. And that was during a time frame that we were open for business, so to speak, in Ontario, right? Um, and this was con sort of a consistent thing. You would see that. I think people just got tired. Like when, when you're not feeling well, you get tired. So I was used to seeing, you know, unkept hair or personal care at a lower standard with people who were um, maybe suffering with cancer, a long-term illness, because they couldn't do it for themselves, right? And now I was seeing it for people that were at home, not ill, you know, no illness, right? Not an expected death, but you were just seeing that people were just unkept. They just weren't quite maybe what they should have been. Um, and then the last um, area I wanted to ask you about. Yes. Is, um, do you have any thoughts on how we could have managed this situation better? But in relation to um, your area, I think an obvious one would be there should be more autopsies when there's a pattern change. But are there any other thoughts that you might have? Well, yeah, so on a professional and personal level, because, you know, I pay taxes too, like everybody else, right? Um, we rely on, uh, um, our system relies on medical care and medical personnel, right? So if, if those personnel are restricted in what they can look at, what they can say, what they can surmise, what they can investigate, um, then our, we're not being cared for. Our community isn't being cared for. Our um, province isn't being cared for because you're taking the opportunity for people who are forward thinking to do their job, right? So when you take the opportunity for forward thinking people to do their job away and we're just like monochromatic people, I guess. There's no intellectual thought process or investigation. If you take that away, then people die, right? Or did, did, it, did it happen because the people that should have been doing that job were afraid? Did it happen because they felt that they were duped as well? I don't know what was going on with coroners, but I would say that they should have noted, noted the anomaly, right? And maybe they did in their, inside themselves, but I haven't seen any reports where they're saying, oh dear, we have a problem, right? And then, you know, the pathologists, right? Where were they? Well, autopsies were less but they weren't that much less. And if that's the case, then if the funeral director can see, right, then why weren't they seeing it? Because, I mean, I was seeing these fiber masses left, um, for lack of a better word, left dangling out of arteries that the pathology department had cut. That's their job. But I would have to take that out in order to embalm that person. And, you know, like they were long, right? <laughs> they were... It's horrific. It was absolutely horrific. I don't, I'm at the point where I don't think, I don't think I can do what I did for a year anymore because it has affected me. So I can do my work, but not at that level ever again, never, because I, I don't need the aggravation that it causes me. It's not nice. Thank you. Now, those are my questions. Uh, we'll open it up if the commissioners have any questions for you.
Yes. Oh. For your testimony. Uh, of course, I mean, the, uh, the structure you were seeing there, I mean, it's very difficult to know exactly what it is and how it came about. Um, I've seen video on that and mm -hmm. I'm wondering myself what it could be. You are not aware of any people that would have tried to investigate? Oh, people have investigated it? it already. Yes, of course. And what is it that they typically found? Because when you mentioned parasite, for example, to me, yeah. it means that this is not human material. It's, it's foreign. I'm not a scientist. I can't investigate that, but I can send you in the right direction to look. Um, my profession, there's a few people that have been uh, quite dedicated to finding out, like, what is this, right? And of course, that's the first thing that went through my mind too. What is this? Because this is new. So if you're extremely curious, which you should be, then you maybe want to review uh, what Dr. Ryan Cole, who's a very dedicated pathologist in the US, has to say about that. But it's not for me to tell you what that is, because I don't know. I'm an embalmer, right? So I, I won't tell you what he thinks it is. Look it up. My other question is about the timing of uh, having these people in terms of the COVID uh, unfolding and the vaccine rollout and so on. So have you seen a sort of coincidence of having more of these events when the vaccination rollout was more intense or is it to totally unrelated? They go hand in hand. It goes hand in hand. And do you see now that the vaccine has been reduced? A lot of people are not no longer taking. Oh yeah, yeah. Have you seen a difference <laughs> in your in your daily work? Um, I can't actually speak to that because I don't embalm regularly anymore. So for the past, uh, I think we're at nine months now. I haven't been in that environment, so I can't tell you. I don't know. Okay, thank you. Thank you for coming today and sharing your testimony. Uh, Bernard asked a few of my questions, but uh, just, um, just to make sure I was listening correctly, these white fibrous masses, you mm -hmm. had never seen them no, before No, they don't exist before. Okay. 2021, spring of 2021. 2021 yeah. What's really weird is the embalmers that I have talked to, none of, none of us can nail down a date because we didn't, log it, right? We just went, huh, that's weird. And then carried on. And then we started to go, huh, that's weird, like all the time. So none of us sort of logged it. I've had many talk to me and they've said, hey, Laura, like, when did you start seeing that? And I said, the best I can tell you is spring of 2021. It, and they say, yeah, me too, right? <laughs> so there, there's, um, within, within the profession, specifically in bombers, there's kind of like this curiosity of, the timing of events, right? But when it comes to the timing of events, I've now spoken with Canadian directors across the country. I anticipate to be speaking to more, um, specifically those that embalm. But more and more are saying, and see, they won't say it in public. Like, I'm the only one that'll stand up and say this in public, right? Which is terrifying, to be honest. So the, they're telling me that they saw exactly what I've discussed today, right? Like, okay, we started seeing middle-aged people that just died suddenly, 
in, a, in a, that particular anomaly. We saw babies. Different, we, we had different stories about the babies, depending on the size of the community they lived in, but they saw that as well, right? Uh, yes, we saw these fiber mass, um, these fiber masses show up in the spring of 2021, but not every single embalmer will tell you that, and then there's funeral directors that don't embalm me too, right? They're not in the prep room every day. So that's, that put me in a, um, an unusual position, right, within the industry. And then there's also funeral directors that have very small funeral homes, and they do all parts of funeral service for a funeral. So those people would be more likely to express it, but they live in a smaller community. So they are more likely to see an escalation because not only do they live in that community, but they know those people and they love them, right? So they're, they take it more to heart as well. So they're more conscious. So it's kind of an interesting industry that way. Thank you. And so when you do an embalming, do you prepare a report or anything like that? Yeah. So um, an embalming report I don't think is mandatory per se, but a lot of um, a lot of funeral directors do an embalming report. It's, it's well suggested. Okay. <laughs> For even authority might come at me now. <laughs> but anyway, um, yes, I, I, I prepared reports um, and I, I don't have access to those anymore. Right? Are, so, what is the purpose of the report? Is it for? It's a long term report. So, if there was an issue where um, someone was disappointed in the effect that we created on their loved one, then the report could be looked at and there would be like uh, just an example. Um, a woman had an unusual arm positioning. Well, that was her arm positioning, not what we did, right? So, I marked on the report. And then when there was a, hey, you know, we weren't really happy with how mom's arm was, well, we opened the report. There it is. There was an issue because of something that happened to her prior to our caring for her, right? So that's just an example. It's, it's very rare for me to ever go back and look at a report, like very rare. Never, pretty much. They just get filed. Okay. Yeah. And then just to change gears a little bit, uh, early in your testimony, you talked about an unusual nine-week period in which you saw a lot of middle-aged women who had ended their own lives. Yes, and it was I awful. Just, I wasn't sure what nine-week period that was. Is there second lockdown? Know? Second lockdown. Okay, thank yeah. you. Thank you. I, I believe those are the the questions of the commissioners. Uh, Ms. Jeffrey, the National Citizens Inquiry, thanks you so much for coming and attending and sharing this very important information with us. Okay. Can I, uh, can I just make a quick statement? Short, short. It's like short. Sure. Okay. So if you're a funeral director or an embalmer and you've been concerned about this for the last two years or so, um, if you would like to reach out, I've set up a Gmail account and you're welcome to reach out there. I, I don't know who would respond, but um, it's concernedfds at gmail.com. So it's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-E-D-F-D-S at gmail.com. And, you know, maybe we can talk about this. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Jeffrey. So welcome back to the National Citizens Inquiry. Um, just as an administrative matter, uh, commissioners, those photos that 
The last witness viewed will be entered as an exhibit, so they'll form part of the record for your consideration. <clears throat> and I'd like to um, introduce our next witness, Mr. Sean Mitchell. Sean, can I get you to state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name? My name's Sean Mitchell, S-E-A-N-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L. And do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Now, my understanding is, is that from 2009 to 2022, you were a paramedic. That's correct. And for the years um, 2016 to 2022, you were an advanced care paramedic. I believe that was 2017 to 2022. Oh, thank you. Now, when the COVID pandemic hit us back in February of 2020, what was your mindset at that time? Uh, in 2020, late 2019, early 2020, um, my mindset, we were, we were told in 2019, late 2019, um, about a atypical pneumonia. We were getting emails from our management about that. Um, didn't really think much of it. Um, into 2020, January, um, like world news was starting to report about a possible outbreak in, in China. So there was some some fears and concerns um, as it progressed through uh, into February and March. Um, so yeah, there were once March hit and there was a declared pandemic, there was definitely some concern. Um, there was a lot of confusion. Uh, but yeah, early on in 2020, it was it was concern and, and confusion. Did your opinion change? And if so, when? My opinion did start to change a little bit as time progressed. Um, once there was more and more information out there about what we were dealing with and the, what we seen, what we were actually dealing with, um, kind of started to relax and, and not be so concerned about um, the severity of, of the virus that we were dealing with. Uh, we seen call volumes drop, drop off drastically in early 2020. So um, just hang on a second, because my understanding is, is that uh, Canada was suffering from a severe COVID-19 uh, pandemic in early of 2020. You're telling us your first responder call rate was dropping? Yeah, that was my experience, and that was confirmed by our management. Can you give us some numbers and, and kind of flesh that out for us a little more? So, uh, as as far as call volume numbers wise, as on a personal um, level, uh, I think it's important to preface. I I worked in the region of Durham. Um, I was at the time a part time paramedic, so I was around bases from Newcastle to west to Pickering, and all the way up to Beaverton. So a, a large demographic and population densities were varying. Um, on a typical shift prior to, to the pandemic, um, I would expect to see have like four, five, six calls to service, depending on which station, all the way up to eight or 10 calls for service where we actually see a patient. Um, during the pandemic, uh, the early months of the pandemic, um, March, April, May, June, uh, it was more like two, three calls for service. So, so some can, I, shifts. can I just stop you there? So, I mean, that's literally down two-thirds 
my experience was, yeah, early on, um, we just weren't getting as many calls for service. So in the, in the spring of 2020, when Canadians are told that we're in an absolute crisis and that uh, our hospitals are full, don't go to the hospital, your call volume has dropped by two-thirds. On a personal level, during yeah, certain days, we would see a fraction of the calls that we would be used to seeing during a typical cold and flu season. And how, how long did that last? I would say it was it was very noticeable early on in the pandemic because that was your typical high higher volume calls um typical cold and flu season my experience was kind of October to March end of March early April um so early on uh it was very distinct um but the lower call volumes lasted up until the following cold and flu season okay so um, so the flu season, so which yeah, some people call low vitamin D season, but it basically starts in the fall, October, November, and runs to the spring. Was it, was it any different in 2020 than in previous years? In, 20, in 2020, yeah, it was like I, like I had said earlier, it did, call volume was less than 2019 seemed less than 2018 like we were we were spending a lot more time at the uh, ambulance stations and not as much time stuck in the hospitals and responding to calls okay so um the media was telling us that our hospitals were full uh, what was your experience early on in the pandemic um the same time period march april may june right till till 2021 um it, I, I experienced very little offload delay um, compared to the year previous and compared to the year 2021. Um, our wait times to get our patients um, offloaded onto a bed were a lot less. The hospitals didn't appear as busy um, in the ambulance areas where we'd wait to be triaged and wait to offload our patients, nor did they seem to be as busy um, in the in the waiting area where the public would access the hospitals. Um, if I can ask you a direct question, have you ever seen the hospitals as empty as they were in the spring of 2020? In the emergency department, that's specifically what we see. Uh, no, not in my career. Okay, so in your career, and you started in, in 20, 2009, you had never seen the emergency rooms as empty as you saw them in the spring of 2020. I had never seen so few uh, patients seeking medical care as I did in 2020. That's correct. Now, you indicated that you uh, work for the region of, of Durham, and you have provided um, to the, the NCI a document called Comprehensive Master Plan for Paramedic Services region of Durham titled August 13th, 2001. And, and that, that document in its entire, entirety will be made available to the commissioners. Um, David, I'm just gonna put a document on my screen. I'm hoping we can pull up. So I'm pulling up from that, that document. And as I say, the full document will be an exhibit um, T-1. But this is page 25 that I'm pulling up from here. 
And when we look at this, what my understanding is, is this basically shows ambulance use. So these, this is basically numbers of calls. Is that correct? Uh, this shows, it just says demand by year. Um, so right. it's a, per, it's a yeah, percentage so it's increase an of call. Yeah. Right. So now if we look at year 2020, and we go down to the bottom where it says annual percentage of change. So 2020, that's the year where we're in the COVID pandemic. We don't have any vaccine to protect us. We have the least natural immunity because, you know, as people get infected, we get more natural immunity. The average um, daily demand went down 0.7%. That's correct. And that's in line with what you experienced. You saw a drop in demand. I did see a drop in demand. And now, if, if we move over to the next line, it's annual or average annual change and the average from 2016 to 2019. So the average annual change, the average is an increase of 4.7%. Yes. So there's not an increase according to this between 2019 and 20, 2020. There's actually a, a decrease, but it might be more significant than minus 0.07% because we would anticipate with population growth and the like for there to be an increase of 4.7%. As shown in the years prior. Now, <clears throat> I want to pull up another document. And can you tell us what this document is? Uh, this is just a standard communication from the chief of our paramedic service. Um, so so this is basically your boss and the person that, you know, communicates what's happening to the paramedics. Yeah. yeah. And, th and this is a letter sent out to all of the paramedics so you get a copy of it. That's right. It's an email. And, and so it's dated March 20th, uh, 2020, and you would have received it on that date. That's right. And it starts, thank you all for working through another challenging week. Luckily, call volumes continue to remain down, but I know that won't last forever. So basically, your boss is saying something that confirms what you're telling us is that in the spring, in, in this case, March, call, vo call volumes are down. Yes. And commissioners, this forms part of the official record as exhibit T0-1JJ. Now, my understanding in, is that in 2020, your department was actually supposed to receive an additional ambulance. We were supposed to receive additional staffing in, uh, I think, the second quarter of 2020, yep. And did you receive that? No, we received a, a e another email similar to the, the last one um, saying that they were going to defer um, adding the additional staffing um, because of low call volumes. So just so that we understand, so you were your department was slotted to get an additional ambulance because of anticipated demand 
and that is put off in the spring of 2020 because demand was so low? That was the uh, that was what the email said. Yeah, and that's my understanding. It was deferred until a later time. No, I, I didn't live in the Durham region, but I expect the media would have reported that ambulance use is down, and so uh, it's being deferred. Uh, they're not getting the new ambulance. Is that what you were hearing in the media in spring that, of 2020? That is not what was stated in the media at all. I had actually asked my management staff to be transparent with the public and report to try to ease ease anxiety uh, within the public. And that conversation just kind of didn't go anywhere. So no, the media wasn't reporting on any of this. What, what, how, how was the media reporting at that time? Uh, at that time, I'm gonna just class that early pandemic. Um, the it was it was fear there was like like i said we were able to spend more time in our ambulance stations than than we would normally um most ambulance stations seem to have cp24 on loop and it was just total fear mongering like it was it was telling telling something that i wasn't seeing in reality and and my my coworkers weren't really seeing um i think there was a lot of unknowns at that point but what the media was saying and what reality um on the road as a as a paramedic and a healthcare provider uh it just wasn't lining up it wasn't the same right you told us earlier that basically the the call volume in spring of 2020 was down by 2 thirds would I be correct in saying that, that never had you been able to spend so much time basically just at, you know, the, the unit, not out in an ambulance? Like I said, we spent a lot of time at the stations, not, not, not moving around. Um, a, lot of, a lot of reflect on that is um, when it is busy, um, they juggle ambulances around. So say if, if an Oshawa, all the Oshawa crews are out, they'll move resources from one station to the other. So in past, a lot of time was spent in trucks just moving from station to station, maybe not seeing a patient. Um, but yeah, because they're just systemically seem like not as many patients calling 911 and not as many calls for service, we weren't spending that time in the truck either. So yeah, we were, we were able to be at our stations Right. Now I want you to, to kind of turn our minds then to staff issues. So the call volume's down, but my understanding is, is actually some of the policies created some staff issues. And can you speak to us about that? Um, <clears throat> yeah, there was early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of uh, confusion, I guess, or they, the Ministry of Health, which kind of dic dictates our, uh, our ambulance call our CAC, our communication center that dispatches us out. Um, the Ministry of Health is in charge of that. And they had a screening process where they would ask the, the person calling 911 um, a series of questions and how those patients answered those questions would dictate whether or not the patient was high risk COVID, screened positive or negative. And um, can I just stop you? If, if you were in a high risk exposure situation, what were paramedics required to do after that? 
So a high-risk exposure uh, would be like somebody that's probable COVID-19 um, and had like a breach of their personal protective equipment. Um, if we were notified of a high-risk exposure, usually it would be days after. Um, we would have to isolate for, I believe it was at that time, it was 14 days, I believe. And would a high-risk exposure also include if you weren't told by dispatch to, you know, that this was high risk and so you didn't put your PPE on and then later found out it was high risk? Yeah, that was kind of the early on where dispatch was including travel. So you could answer yes to a lot of questions regarding like got fever, shortness of breath, cough. But if you answered that you hadn't traveled in the last 14 days, um, you would automatically be screened negative when there was information out there the community spread was already happening. So there were um, times where myself and co-workers were dispatched to a call um, that the person was uh, a probable COVID-19 and, and did test positive after where dispatch said there was it, the patient didn't screen positive. Um, so paramedics would walk into scene, they would have contact with that patient, then find out that, yeah, maybe we should put some protective equipment on because this person is cough, shortness of breath, febrile. We would just get COVID positive or COVID negative. So, and I just want to make sure that everyone understands what you're saying. So somebody, you know, calls in and they're being screened and they're asked, do you have a fever? Yes. Do you, are you coughing? Yes. Did you travel in the last 14 days? Nope. So they're classed as basically negative. Er early on. on yeah. yeah, early on, yes, that's So then right. you guys would show up without putting PPE on, and the person has a fever and is coughing. Sometimes, yes. This was, uh, I, did, I did bring this to my management's attention, and in uh, the communication that I got back from my management, they acknowledged that, Yes, the Ministry of Health screening process has been causing problems. Um, they haven't really evolved with, with the knowledge of, of the virus. Okay, and am I correct that this policy, as, as long as it lasted, created a bit of a shortage because then the paramedics had to go in quarantine? Yeah, if, if a patient did have a, or sorry, a paramedic did have a high risk exposure, uh, meaning they didn't have PPE on and the person was likely or confirmed uh, COVID-19, um, they would have been um, told to isolate and uh, monitor their symptoms if they had any or let them know if they had symptoms. And then they were, I think, directed after that, if they did have symptoms, to, to undergo a PCR test. So. Yeah, there's only so many paramedics in our service, so the, the more that are, are told to isolate and not come to work, it, it developed staffing challenges. Okay, and, and that was independent of whether or not the paramedic was actually sick? Yeah, to my knowledge, that was just uh, like a high-risk exposure. Now, in the year 2020, which is the year we're speaking about, um, and just, you know, to set the stage, so we're in the pandemic, we'd have the least natural immunity, there is no vaccine at all. Um, what was your observation on, you know, are paramedics, you know, actually getting sick and dying because of COVID or any other reason in 2020? Uh, 
paramedics were getting sick. Um, I do know that there were paramedics that were like confirmed did have COVID. Um, I do not know of any paramedic in my service that died of COVID-19. Um, so paramedics were getting sick, but not in any greater extent than, than I have seen in the past, perhaps even to a lesser extent. Okay. So, so compared to other years, there was no, no meaningful change that you saw? Not that I saw, no. Now, <clears throat> you sent a, an email, and I, I can't pull that document up for the public, but you sent an email to your supervisor, uh, Troy, do you pronounce it Cheeseboro? That's correct, yeah, Cheeseboro. <clears throat> In, uh, Mar on March 24th, 2023, and the, the commissioners have a copy of this, and it's going to be part of the record as TO-1KK, so anyone can look that up once it's posted as part of the record. Um, now, this is coming, this is at, you know, beginning of the pandemic, and I, I just want to draw your attention to um, the last paragraph, and specifically the last, or the second sentence, and I'm going to read it to you and then ask for your comments. Um, but basically, this is <clears throat> your boss sending an email to all of the paramedics. I just want to confirm that's the March 7th, 2020 email. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the date that you sent it to me. So, okay. yes, March 7th, 2020. Thank you for correcting me. So he basically writes to all the paramedics, remember not to get caught up with social media as not all that information is accurate and only serves to increase concern. Corona coronavirus has been around since the late 60s. So the only thing new is an enhanced ability to screen for it and the global scale which it seems to have taken. Now, do you remember receiving that email? I do. And um, basically, did you interpret that as, as he's saying, calm down, this is early on in the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, because like I said, early on in the pandemic, there was concern. Um, paramedics have families. I had a, a pregnant wife that's also a paramedic in the same service at the time. So we were hearing about PPE shortages, which uh, there was an email that he had sent out saying we're well supplied. Don't worry about that. Um, there was all sorts of information going out on the media. And this was him reassuring us that like we're in, we're in good shape. Like, right. It's going to be okay. And basically to ignore the social media where people are voicing concern about this. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> my understanding is, is that you guys were also getting weekly reports for the Durham region for the first couple of months of the pandemic. That's right. It was uh, like a COVID report that would just say uh, case counts in Durham region, um, potential case counts, that sort of thing. And did they basically match what you were seeing? Uh, for the most part, yeah, like the, the reports that we were getting were pretty low numbers, really, for the, for the amount of COVID positives that we were having. Um, there was nothing to really compare that to. We'd never gotten any, any kind of statistical, weekly statistical update in any years prior about, about like, 
flu-like symptoms or, or sicknesses. So they kind of match the, the numbers of us population around 700,000. We're, we're pretty low, I thought. So okay. yeah, I'd say they match. I'm just going to pull up one of those reports. And I, I apologize for the audience that it's not the, the clearest. Uh, Mr. Mitchell, you have a, a paper copy, copy and the commissioners have a paper copy. Um, but for those viewing online and in person, in that first box, the very bottom line, so this, this is a report um, in RDPS, that just basically refers to the paramedic service that you belong to. That's right. And it's a situation report as of March 26, 2020. And the last line in that first box says 37 cases in Durham region, 31 are in, on self-isolation and five are hospitalized, one death. <clears throat> now, my understanding is, is that the population of Durham region is roughly about 688,000 people at the time. Somewhere around there, yeah, just under 700,000. Right, so I'm just going to go with the 688 figure because that's what you told me on, a, on an interview. And so if we have 37 cases divided by 688,000, we basically end up with 0.00005% of the population um, is being reported as a COVID case. And yes. does that kind of match what you were seeing? Yeah, like I had said before, we weren't really seeing anything out of the ordinary for this time of year. Like we, we were definitely getting respiratory um, cases that we'd respond to, but whether they were COVID or not, like I've, I've seen COVID cases that we were told were COVID cases, but it wasn't an eye-popping number of them. So yes, I'd say that this matches my experience. Is the, is the population of Durham in lockdown on March 26, 2020? Do you recall? I don't know. I know that it had gotten, like a uh, pandemic had gotten declared um, around that time, like March 20th. I don't know when lockdown started. I'm not sure. Right, where I'm from in Alberta, I think, um, we, you know, we started with two weeks to flatten the curve in March. Um, and I learned that my education uh, was wrong in elementary school because I thought a, a week was seven days. So, uh, but I'm wiser now. Do you recall, was the similar thing happening in Durham or you're not sure if there was a lockdown? There was a lockdown. I just don't know if the lockdown was on March 26. But yeah, around that time, we were in <coughs> lockdown as well. And with the media reporting, um, I had gotten the impression from uh, an earlier interview that, you know, really the media in the Durham region, it was, they were painting kind of an extreme case, like there's case after case after case after case. Um, was the media reporting that you were seeing kind of consistent with a 0.00005% um, case rate? No. What, what was your impression of the media reporting at the time? At the time, my impression that was that this was the deadliest virus that could hit humanity, and we should all be afraid. 
And I just, like I said before, I just was not seeing that in my, my profession and responding to patients. Okay. And then for anyone who wants to view this, once it's up, it's going to be exhibit T0-1GG. So um, now we were talking about 2020. Now in 2021, we had the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines. Did you, and my understanding is they're released in January 2021, did you see a change, um, let's say in hospital use, after or into 2021? So um, the following cold and flu season, um, so starting like November of 2020 into early 2021, um, that's where we, I definitely started seeing um, a kind of a return back to normal call volumes where we were getting your typical calls for service and uh, hospitals were starting to get busier. Um, offload delays were starting to increase into uh, late 2020, early 2021. So, um, right. were they were they higher than than normal prior to the vaccine release? Yeah, they were definitely higher than 2020. Absolutely. <clears throat> right. So that's January into January, February 2021. That's right. Was there a um, change in the type of call? So let's move into the spring of 2021. So a year after the pandemic starts, are you starting to see a change in the type of call? Yeah, um, so along with the increased call volume, um, we were starting to see changes. Um, a, lot of, a lot of mental health problems, um, starting to see more opioid and, and drug-related um, kind of like social calls. Um, I was starting to see uh, some events that were concerning um, with younger people and medical events that way. Um, it, we started getting correspondence in 2021 about, uh, as, I don't want to say assaults, but aggression towards I, like healthcare workers and paramedics. So. Can, I, can I just stop you? So you were, you were talking, first of all, about a change in calls in younger people. Can you give us the age range? Um, like late 20s, early 30s, 40s of like healthy individuals um, that were had no real medical history that were feeling the need to call 911 for legitimate medical emergencies. So, and were you seeing a, you know, kind of type of injuries that you hadn't seen before for this age group? I was seeing symptoms and I was seeing medical findings um, more often than I, that I didn't see in those age demographics in years prior. Um, so there were a, a number of cases that come to mind, um, but I was seeing like younger people my age, a little bit younger, a little bit older, that were having cardiac-like uh, symptoms having uh, neurological type symptoms that they'd never had any history of. They were young, healthy individuals. So as far as the neurological type symptoms, can you share with us what you were seeing? So I was seeing uh, like stroke-like symptoms. So um, like unilateral paralysis, facial droop, uh, slurred speech, um, muscle spasms on like certain parts of their body. Uh, I've seen a number of uh, narcolepsy type things where patients were just falling asleep. Um, 
like at a gas station, at a gas pump in their driver's seat of their car or sitting with their son and daughter at the kitchen table and falling asleep and just not being able to stay awake. Uh, I've seen cardiac uh, concerns. So just before we go to the cardiac, so because um, you've, you've, you've spoken about, you're talking about you know, basically young to middle-aged people um, falling asleep you know, at, at the gas pump in the driver's seat or, you know, falling asleep while they're eating a meal with the family. Had you ever seen anything like that before? Never in my career. So, so not only have you ever seen that before, but now this isn't an, an atypical call. You're getting calls, plural, with this type of thing. Multiple calls, like patterns of, of similar calls within similar demographics. And once history gathering uh, developed with those patients, finding a common denominator of, of recent vaccination. And then the stroke-like symptoms that you spoke about, like slurred speech and, and twitching muscles and the like, had you been seeing those types of symptoms in this age group prior? I have prior to this seen those types of symptoms in younger age groups, but not to the frequency and extent that I was seeing it okay. at that time. So you were also speaking about cardiac um, problems in this, this age group. Can you share with us what you were observing and also whether or not it was a change? So I was observing um, younger individuals, um, athletic individuals that when they would exert themselves, like the like one that comes to mind was a hockey player that was 33 years old. Um, Any time they would exert themselves, they would get crushing chest pain. It would last for two or three days. They couldn't be physical. Um, we were seeing um, pericarditis come up on our 12 electro, uh, electrocardiograms. Um, we're seeing like younger um, ST elevation MIs. Um, yeah, like a lot of concerning cardiac type calls that were happening in a, in a demographic that you wouldn't really expect to see it as frequent as I was. So, so it was a change from previous or pre-vaccination years? That's correct. Um, what about were you having to respond to calls where people were not alive? Yes. Yes, we, uh, we were responding to VSA calls as well, which is vital signs absent. And was there a change in the calls where persons already died by the time you've arrived? As far as, um, as, far as numbers, I wouldn't say there was too much of a change as far as like the amount of VSAs that I responded to. Um, I did notice that there were some younger VSAs, which isn't out of the ordinary, but there, there were some younger ones, a few more than I, I would expect. But as far as like more or less, I would say it was pretty, pretty consistent with the years prior to the pandemic. And as far as the changes you've told us, so, you know, you've seen, you know, these neurological calls and these cardiac calls in a younger age group than you had seen before. Um, how were paramedics responding to this? Just like they do for any call, they get a call for service and they respond and give the best patient care that they can. Um, yeah. Now, you became concerned about this, so you basically spoke to one of your supervisors. 
Yeah, uh, after a number of a number of uh, patients that I kind of thought were attributed to vaccine injuries or having some sort of problem with the vaccine, um, I did uh, I did contact a quality development um, coworker of mine, and they're responsible for for basically everything um, with gathering data, gathering information, educating um, paramedics on trends. They were the ones sending out um, the, the reports of COVID case numbers. Um, so I reached out to him in order to just see, first off, if anybody else has reported like concerning, concerning trends, and if there was one some way that we could capture um, just on our electronic call report uh, when a person was vaccinated, like what date, time, um, with what vaccination, and that was it, just a checkbox, just to, to, just to be able to collect data and drive data to see if maybe there's some sort of correlation um, between the two. He had forwarded my concerns up to all of our managers, upper management, because at this time I wanted to kind of remain anonymous because that's just the way that I felt was the best way to go, given um, the, the workplace environment. And uh, there was no response from management. I think there was one one road manager that got back saying something. but And, uh, and I'll just shorten this a bit. As my understanding is, is that over um, a period of, of maybe eight months, you you followed up and you followed up and basically there was no change to require reporting. That's right. There was so, no, no change, we're told. But just so that we understand or just make sure that I've, I've understood your evidence correctly. So you're seeing these changes and you're, because of that, you're thinking, well, we should be documenting on a report we have to do anyway. Let's add a box for vaccination and just a few details so that we can see if the change is related to the vaccination. That's right. And you had approached management, uh, made several efforts, and at the end of the day, n there was no change. Paramedics were not um, requested to change their reporting at all. That's right. <clears throat> now, as 2021 went on, uh, what happened to the call volumes? Uh, 2021, um, call volume returned back to kind of what it was pre-pandemic. It was busy. Um, we were having more downstaffed vehicles. Um, we were having a lot longer times on offload delay. Uh, this was confirmed, not just like my, my experience, but this was confirmed in multiple emails from our managers, um, just acknowledging that, yeah, in fact, in 2021, uh, so offload delay time had doubled. What happened when, the, when you call it the flu season? So, you know, <clears throat> into the winter, so October, November, maybe December, you're well into the flu season of 2021. Uh, what were the hospital, what was the basically hospital situation at that time? At that time, it was it was busy. Yeah, it was like people were coming to the hospital for for all the things that they went to the hospital for prior to the pandemic. Um, it was busy. It was chaotic. Offload delays. The hospitals were were busy. So there was no increase because of the vaccinations. I can't say why there was an increase. There was a definite increase from 2020 to 2021. I, I can't say for sure. Why? Okay. Now, um, were the paramedics in the Durham region required to get vaccinated? 
Uh, yes, yes, they were required um, in September of 2021. Uh, a policy came out, a number of policies came out between September and December of 2021, but a policy came out um, that correlated with the Ministry of Health Directive number six, and it originally had stated that they have to, uh, covered organizations have to have a vaccination or an immunization policy um, for COVID-19. And as that living document progressed, um, the Region of Durham Paramedic Service, as well as the entirety of the Region of Durham staff, um, was required to either get vaccinated or lose their job. And so basically then in, in 2021, um, was your understanding that the majority of paramedics did get vaccinated? That's my understanding, yes. And we're uh, in 2021 when, you know, after the paramedics start getting vaccinated, um, did that basically create a situation where they were less sick, there was less off time because they had been vaccinated and protected from COVID-19? I don't think so, no. I think that sick time was getting worse in 2021 compared to 2020. Okay, so was that your observation? That was my observation, yes. And like I said, management had confirmed thanking paramedics um, for, for taking overtime shifts to cover vacancies. So our, our managers did acknowledge that in a December email, 2021 email. Now I, I'm going to pull up for you another document. I've just got the first page here and I'll, I'll scroll down, scroll down. I, I can advise people that the entire document is a is an exhibit um, but I'm just for brevity reproducing what would be page 18 but this is the consolidated financial statements for the regional municipality of Durham for the year ending December 31st 2021 And I'm just going to scroll up a bit here. So people can see that at the top in blue is number six, employee benefits and post-employment liabilities. And if we go down, there's a, a section at the top, liability for WSI benefits. Do you see where that is? Yes. And if we go down to where there's a line, the last line there is benefit payments. I see and that. When you go to the top of the document, and I apologize for those in the audience, I haven't scrolled up, but this is in thousands of dollars. So for if we look at the year 2020, benefit payments, so actual payouts to paramedics, um, that 5986 is actually $5,986 paid out to paramedics for WSI benefits and WSI benefits are basically workplace injuries, right? That's right. Work. So, so if you're injured at work in BC, where I, I practice, it's you know workmen's compensation, but in Ontario, it's WSI. Yeah, and it's not necessarily like a physical injury. It could be like emotional or right. like right. So, but if we go to the year 2021, so 2020 is is 
So that's where we're in the pandemic. There's no vaccine. There, there should be less natural immunity. We have, you know, $5,986,000 paid out. But if we go to 2021, <clears throat> where we now have the vaccine rollout, we have $9,202,000 a payment. And if you do the math, that is exactly a 65% increase in uh, basically what would be the equivalent of off time for workplace um, injury in the year 2021. It did, it, does that match with your experience? Yes, it matches it, the year that vaccines were, were mandatory, made mandatory, increased WSI benefits and, were paid out. And so I'll just ask, um, because my understanding is, as you know, you were a little critical about there not being reporting and then there being imposition of a vaccine mandate. Um, my understanding is, is that you actually lost your job because of that. That's correct. So <clears throat> would you have any recommendations of, on how we could do this better if, if we ever faced a similar situation? Yes. Um, I, early on in the pandemic, we were... It was frontline this and frontline that, frontline workers, essential workers. Nobody listened to the frontline workers. I tried multiple times to, to bring concerns um, to management and, and facilitate it up through the chain of command and nothing, it was either ignored or just nothing was done. So we need to listen to the workers and the people that are, that are on, the, on the ground and doing the work and living it day to day that have been experiencing this for years and it wasn't being listened to at all. They, we weren't being listened to. It was all, um, our, man, our managers had an opportunity. All the statistics were there in our paramedic service. All the statistics, statistics are there in um, hospital corporations to show um, the call volumes early on in the pandemic, the first year of the pandemic were low, and all the statistics are there um, to show that after, in 2021 and 2022 that it, it substantially increased. So if we want to manage uh, another event like this properly, we need to listen to the boots on the ground. Thank you. Those are all the questions I have. Uh, I'll open this up if the commissioners have any questions of you. Thank you very much, Mr. Mitchell, for your testimony. I have a question uh, related to the last answer you provided about the um, recommendation that the management or administration should listen more to what you have to contribute. Is it something that was part of the culture before the pandemic, or was it, is it something that was, in other words, lost during the pandemic management? Or is it just a trend that was there for a long time? I think it's kind of a trend that's been there for a long time. Um, you don't really, you, the public doesn't know anything about like statistics and call volumes. There's been a, a significant um, lack of resources in at least Durham region for a number of years that started long before the pandemic and the statistics are there to show it. Um, the report that I had given Mr. Buckley there kind of outlines this, this systemic problem. Um, but I had brought forth to my management 
during, I guess, late 2020, why aren't we using the statistics to try to bring calm to the public? Why aren't we like saying like, we're not overrun, like we have resources, we have proper protective equipment, the hospitals are in good shape. Like why aren't we using and being transparent with the data that we collect every day? And I just got a political answer to it and nothing was ever, nothing was ever really done. And I think that had, had there been transparency um, with our service and with our profession and with the hospitals early on, we wouldn't be seeing um, problems that we're seeing today and that we were, we were seeing in 2021 with uh, violence towards paramedics, violence towards nurses, violence towards first responders. The, the public, a lot of members in the public realized that they were being lied to um, during the pandemic and there was nothing that um, my service did to try to reassure, reassure the public and I think that's very unfortunate. So a systemic problem of our, our, our management system not reporting on anything. So is it your observation that now their management start to realize that and they have a plan to fix it? I, I haven't been at the workplace since January of 2022. Um, I'm not really sure that they have a plan. The report that I submitted, um, the master plan, was the first step in kind of acknowledging the trends that were going on long before the pandemic about staffing shortages, about downstaffed ambulances, about all that stuff. So they have done some things to try to at least support uh, their effort towards council to obtain resources. But as far as being transparent to the public, I, I don't know if they're doing anything. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your testimony. I'd like to just go back to your emails for closer. Sorry. I'd like to just go back to the emails. In the March 20th, well, let's, let's start with March 7th email. This is coming from the Durham Region Health Department. I believe that that was the time that churches were being told that they had to close and that small businesses could have a maximum of five people entering their business places. So you were being told at that time, um, let me get this right, you wanted, uh, your supervisor wants to remind everyone in the, the PPP is only required on calls that are given meeting. The criteria are determined immediately upon your assessment to meet the criteria. And then if I jump to the last sentence of that paragraph, the most important factor to consider is to ensure good hand washing with a minimum of 20 seconds or aggressive scrubbing with a good soap. And then on the March 20th email, going into long-term homes, I would like to suggest to all that in the event you are responding to any long-term care home, you take the opportunity to wear a mask, gloves, and eye protection on all calls to long-term care facilities. The gowns should be only be required if you intend to perform, and it continues on that. So from your experience, as a paramedic and just looking at the public policy that come down, would you think it was an unfair statement by the provincial government to actually close uh, small business and churches, for example, when you're only being advised that a good strong hand washing is a good response? 
I I think that yeah, like I, it's I I don't want to get into public health um, stuff really because that's not my area of expertise but it was pretty obvious early on from emails and from experiences that we had that the the severity of COVID-19 wasn't as severe as we were being made to believe and like we were responding to these these um, long-term care facilities and there like it was it was sad at times so like we were responding there not always for serious medical calls but like yeah you'd see individuals locked in their rooms and and you just it 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 wasn't what was going on at that time was not right um and it just kind of goes along with the they didn't really know what to do it seems like because every week we were getting conflicting things from the week prior of like should we gown up should we be reusing our ppe like put them in this bin so we can wash our single-use ppe like no don't do that we're going to use aerosolized uh, procedures like ventolin um no don't do that because like you're at increased risk don't intubate people when they need it because you're at increased risk there were it was just that those weekly COVID reports not only gave the case counts, but they also gave like directions on what we were to do or not to do. And they were just, it was all over the place. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know if locking down businesses was the right answer. I don't know if locking down long-term care facilities were the right answer. If, if things were going to get in there, they were going to get in there. And typically, like every other cold and flu season we've had, long-term care facilities are on like outbreak, they call it. So it's not unusual for, for long-term care facilities to be placed on outbreak or different floors on outbreak. Like that's just standard procedure. This one was just more extreme. I want to thank you for your honesty. We heard we heard from previous testimony last uh, two weeks ago in Truro that the government, in fact, had a detailed influenza pandemic plan in place, called the, uh, if I recall, the Canadian Influenza Pandemic Plan for the health sector. Being a paramedic, I assume that means you're in the health sector. Yes, it does. Did you were you aware of this detailed report? Uh, no, I was not. Like I had said, um, we were getting uh, correspondence through email about in in late 2019 about atypical pneumonia, um, but yeah, we were made aware of no no such national plan. One. Um, question of curiosity for myself when you were to wear PPE what PPE were you wearing to protect you from 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 the um, uh, the, the the breathing in the the, uh, the COVID virus so that like I said earlier it kind of changed back and forth like what the requirements were so um, I was I was I utilized for the most part of the pandemic uh, it's called a P100 mask um, it's like a rubber rubber thing that goes over your nose, mouth, and, and jaw, and uh, it's got two pink filters. So that's kind of the best protection that we were allowed to, or we were issued. Um, N95 masks were used. Uh, 
we were supposed to wear goggles and safety glasses at times. Um, we were supposed to wear gowns and Tyvek suits at times, and then other times they told us not to do that. So it was kind of all over the place. But as far as like inhaling um, virus particles um, when doing patient care, we with a suspected uh, COVID-19 case, um, we were to use N95 or P100 masks and then use surgical masks right. in the trucks and at stations. Right, and, and the, the, the one mask you described, I guess, is what they describe as a respirator. And I, I noticed that you're, you, you're, today you're sporting a very fashionable beard. Thank like, you. Like myself. And how, how are those masks sealed? around someone with a, a facial hair, beard, mustache, et cetera. So they aren't, they aren't like the, so it's, it, yeah, they, they don't seal properly. We, every two years, our service is required to undergo uh, mask fit testing. Um, so um, physiological changes as people age or gain weight, lose weight, um, just to keep on top of that. And we have a policy that says you're to be clean shaven. Now, if you're a supervisor, a clean shaven means you can have a goatee around there. If you're a paramedic, like that's kind of depends, but uh, proper like PPE, um, you're supposed to be clean shaven. So uh, are you saying that even when they dictated a certain PPE, like a respirator, they weren't necessarily enforcing the correct way to use it? Uh, so they had a, big scramble for mask fit testing as the pandemic rolled out because they hadn't done it for longer than the two years they were supposed to. Um, there is a policy in place that says you're supposed to be clean shaven uh, like to, to maintain a proper seal. Um, they, some supervisors would enforce that and some wouldn't, but for the most part during the pandemic, um, the start of the pandemic, like every, like I said, people were afraid, so they were doing everything that they could to protect themselves and, and protect their family. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <clears throat> there being no further questions, Mr. Mitchell, uh, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, I'd like to thank you for coming and testifying today. Thank you for the opportunity. Right. I'd like to begin by asking you to state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name for the record. Sure. My name is Natasha Petit, N-A-T-A-S-H-A-P-E-T-I-T-E. And do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. Now, <clears throat> Natasha, my understanding is, is that you are, you have a disability and you simply cannot wear a mask. That is correct. Can you describe for us basically how that came about? Because I'll just back up. My understanding is you used to work in the oil patch in Alberta. Yeah, I worked in the oil and gas industry in mainly Fort McMurray, Alberta for 10 years. And, and you, you worked in dangerous environments where yes. you had to wear a mask. Yeah, we had to wear like we have the there's the half mask with a P100 filter respirator and then there's the full face. And sometimes we had to do like um, full face and under Scott air supply breathing. Right. So, and, and the point I'm just trying to make is, is it's not like you're mask averse or anything like that. Exactly. You <laughs> professionally worn lots of masks, but something happened and now you truly have a disability and, and can't wear a mask. That's correct. So can you share with us how that came about? So in 2018, I was living in Quebec and I was in a car accident. It was January 24th, 2018. 
in which um, I'm actually lucky to be alive today. I was trapped in the car for about 45 minutes. Um, I had the air knocked out of me. Um, my, some of my teeth were smashed. And um, pretty much from that day, I have uh, lost feeling in several different parts of my left leg. I have memory loss issues, um, herniated discs in my neck and my back, uh, manic, uh, sorry, uh, major depressive disorder, anxiety, and uh, ADHD recently diagnosed. So you haven't gotten in, into it, and I don't need you to, but is it fair to say it also you were in a prolonged situation um, with where it was difficult to breathe? Yes. It was enclosed. There was smoke all about, mm -hmm. and that is part of the reason why you just simply cannot wear a mask. Yeah, it's actually, um, I do have PTSD from the car accident, um, and I have been in trauma therapy for the last five years for that. Um, basically, I cannot have anything on my face, around my face. If it's minus 40 outside, you will not see me with my face covered because it just sends me into panic because I can't breathe. My breathing feels so restricted that I just, I'll have an anxiety attack. And you had a medical exemption for this, yes. for a mask, a legitimate one. Yes. Um, during any masking mandate. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> now, my understanding is, is um, you had been on a career path in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll ask this when you go, mm -hmm, we're not sure if you're yes. saying yes, yes or no, so please use words. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, so you were a corrections officer. And your plan was then to work from corrections into probation. Mm -hmm. And again. Yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. And then into parole. Yes. And then segue into basically helping veterans and first responders who, you know, have PTSD and things like that and help yes. them cope. That was, you had this all planned out, basically spending your entire career in law enforcement. Yes. <clears throat> I wanted to be in law enforcement since I was 10 years old. Yeah, so a childhood, childhood yeah, dream it was for a dream, you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, Christmas Eve, 2021. Yeah. Can you please tell us your story? So I was actually back in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, visiting my mother for Christmas, my family. And my mother and I went to Walmart at approximately 12.30, 1 o'clock in the afternoon to get some last-minute Christmas items. And the lady at the door said, excuse me, you have to wear a mask. Um, I told her I was exempt, and she said I know because she had seen me there. Actually, two days prior, I was there on December 22nd, and nobody said anything to me about it. So she said she had to call the manager, and I said, okay, you call the manager, do what you have to do. I was approached by the first manager who told me that you have to put a mask on or leave the store. I told him I was exempt, and he said, where is your medical documentation? I said, excuse me, I said, you can't ask me that. That's you're not my doctor, you're not a medical professional, and you cannot ask me for my documentation. So he um, he said, made a comment of kind of accusing me of lying, or like, how do we know you're not lying? So then he got the second manager, and he came and said the same thing, that you have to put a mask on or you have to leave. I said, I'm not going anywhere, I have a medical exemption. He also asked for my medical exemption letter, and I told him the same thing, that you cannot ask me. For that, you're not a medical professional. So they told me they had to call the um, non-emergency police. So I said, you do what you have to do, and I'm going to do what I have to do, and I'm going to continue my Christmas shopping. So about 15 minutes later, I was in the water aisle, and one officer sh showed up, and she said, 
you need to put a mask on or leave. And I said, well, no, I have a medical exemption. She also asked to see it, in which I explained to her that she is also not a medical professional and she doesn't have authority to ask me for such documentation. So from there, she said, um, I need to put a mask on again or leave. I questioned her about her mask because she was wearing one of those, um, it's like a stretchy bandana that she just pulled over her face. So I made a comment about her mask not actually being a mask. Um, so from there, we were just arguing back and forth. She called for the second officer. So the second officer arrived and he said the same thing. You need to put a mask on, you need to leave. So I told him the same thing. I said, I have a medical exemption and I, I can't wear a mask. So he, um, asked me for, um, the note. I told him I don't, I don't carry something like that with me and you can't ask. So we argued back and forth and he said, you know, wearing a mask is a mandate and you need to wear it by law. And I said, well, no, by law, I don't. I do not have to wear it because a mandate is not a law. It's a recommendation. And I was recommended by a doctor like to not wear a mask. So he called for officer number three. So officer three came and he, he basically came right in there and said, you're coming with me. And I said, I'm not going anywhere with you. And he said, you need to put a mask on or you need to leave right now. I said, I don't need to do anything. And I'm not going anywhere. I didn't break any laws. I'm here shopping like everybody else. And I have the right to do that. Again, there was just like a back and forth arguing over mandates and laws and who was right, who was wrong. I had just turned to reach for my cell phone. I thought this might be a good time to turn my camera on. And as I did that, officer number three grabbed my arm the second officer grabbed this arm. I went forward into the shelving, which essentially bruised my ribs. And then we wrestled probably, I don't know, for a good minute. And they threw me down to the floor. Um, my face hit the floor. I'm sorry. No, and, <laughs> my face hit the floor. And, and take your time. And, and um, I knew there was somebody trying to hold down my feet. And... My mother was with me, so my mother yelled out, she's a trained corrections officer, just to give them a heads up. So someone was trying to hold my feet, and I, there was um, officer number two was to my right side, officer three was on my left side, and I did like what we would call the turtle, is where you like tuck everything in, it makes it harder for them to detain you. So that's what I did. And officer number two had slipped his arm underneath me and he placed me in the chokehold, which the chokehold is illegal in Canada since like 1979. And I couldn't breathe and I kept, I kept trying to say that I couldn't breathe. I told him I couldn't breathe, and he said, if you can scream, you can fucking breathe. I really couldn't breathe. And I was having an anxiety attack at the same time because I couldn't breathe. And, um... I was having an anxiety attack and I couldn't breathe and I could see stars. I knew I was passing out. Um, 
I knew I was going to pass out, so I talked to myself, and as hard as I was fighting, I said, like, Natasha, you need to either give in or you're going to pass out. I, like, struggled so hard, I ended up urinating myself. So I gave in, and my mom told them, sorry, my mom told them that I have, um, issues with like my shoulders and stuff from the accident so they used two pairs of cuffs because I can't put my hands behind my back so they flipped me over and I was sitting on the ground like struggling to breathe and they told me to get up and I'll be 100% honest I said you fucking took me down you can fucking pick me up and they picked me up and took me out to the police car can I can I just stop you were, were they told anything about your medical condition before they took you down um, yes, because they were all asking to see my medical documentation, and I, I wouldn't show it to them. I said, it's none of your business, but if you must know, I said I was in a car accident in 2018, and I said I have, like, physical and mental disabilities. So they were told before they physically took you to the ground? Yes. That you have both physical and mental disabilities. Yes. That would complicate them taking you to the ground. Yes. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. So you're telling us they'd now handcuffed you in front? Yeah, they handcuffed me, and one officer was on one side, one was holding my arm on the other side, and they took me out to the car. And I told the officer that had me in the chokehold, I told him that my cuffs were too tight, they were digging in my hands. And he didn't say anything, and I, I repeated myself, and I said, I know you heard me. And he didn't say anything, and I said, well, why won't you loosen my cuffs? And he was standing, like, right here, really, really close. And I asked him why he wouldn't loosen my cuffs, and he looked at me, and he said, because you're a fucking bitch. And, and what, did, what did you do in response to that? Um, I asked... Uh, the girl that was with him, officer number one, I said, did you hear that rookie? Because I knew she was very new. I said, did you hear that rookie, what he said? And she said, nope. I said, yeah, I thought so. Right, so basically you were confirming that the other officer, the young officer, was going to cover for the older one. Yeah. So carry on, what happened after that? So after that, um, they placed me in the back of the police vehicle, Probably, I, was, I would say probably a good 20 minutes, I waited. And then they took me to the police station into lockup and took all my belongings from me and took my jacket off. They took the cuffs off. I asked for my cell phone right away to take pictures of my hands, but I wasn't allowed to have access to it at that point. And the senior officer, which would be officer number two, he said, um, we're going to let you go today. There won't be any charges. It won't, you won't have anything on your record. And I said, well, I would hope not because I didn't break any laws and I'm not a fucking criminal. So from there, um, my brother came and picked me up from the jail. And I didn't bother, like, I didn't go to the hospital or anything because I know they probably would have called 
the police again over a mask. So I just went home, but I have, um, I do have pictures, I have photos, they busted my lip. I had a bruise here on my head, a bruise the side of my neck. I had locked jaw for about three days, I couldn't open my mouth because the chokehold. Did, um, did you have a conversation, because my understanding is that you were taken to the police station by the first officer. Did you have a conversation with the first officer on the trip to the police station? I did, yes. Can you tell us about that? Um, she told me that she had a three-year-old nephew who had asthma, and even he wears a mask. And people like me were the reason why people were dying. Now, I'm curious because I'm just guessing that on Christmas Eve, Walmart is just packed with people. So there must have been a whole bunch of people watching these three officers take you down after you explain to them that you have physical and mental disabilities. Um, what can you tell us about, first of all, was there a crowd there, and, and what can you tell us about that? Honestly, it was like I was a spectacle. There was people lined up from the beginning of the aisle right out to the door. Um, and I was yelling when I was going out. I'm like, how can you people stand there? and watch three police officers on one woman who has disabilities. How can you stand there and watch this and not say anything and not do anything? I asked them, where, like, what happened, what happened to humanity? What happened to people's morals and values? It was absolutely, like, just... I can't even really explain the feeling. It was humiliating, degrading, embarrassing. And I and thank you for sharing. Because we can see that it, it's difficult. I, I don't have any further questions, and I'll just ask if the commissioners have any questions. Natasha, um, it's very important that people like you tell us their stories. So we'll, <clears throat> on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, I'd like to thank you for sharing your you. story with us. Thank you for doing this. And our next witness is going to be uh, Tamara. So Tamara, do you want to come and take the stand? Could I ask you to uh, state and spell your name for the record, please? Yes, it's Tamara, T-A-M-A-R-A, Ugolini, U-G-O-L-I-N-I. And before we proceed further, I just want to make a note of clarification here that I am a journalist who has been reporting on the National Citizens Inquiry, and I plan to continue doing that work. However, I'm here this afternoon in my complete personal capacity. Thank you. Do you promise to tell the truth today? I do. We'll start with uh, an incident that happened on the beach with your family. Uh, can you tell us um, what happened and how many of you were out? So the first incident that happened on the beach, there's a beach where I live called Pebble Beach. And in the, the end of March 2020, or perhaps even the very first few weeks of April 2020, I can't recall exactly when this happened. But um, it was when we had restrictions on outdoor gatherings of five people or less. 
And <clears throat> I had taken my four children. Uh, we've since had another child, but at the time I had four children and myself, so that was five, including my youngest sister, who we lived with at the time. So six children total, sorry, five children total plus myself, six people, to a beach to throw some rocks because there was literally nothing else to do. The playgrounds were closed, the schools were closed, the swimming lessons ended abruptly. Uh, the membership that we had just purchased a week prior to the local YMCA was null because that was also closed. There was literally, quite literally, nothing else to do. Um, and when so we, we, we got to the beach to throw rocks in the water and um, we ran into some friends uh, who also were doing the same. And the children hadn't seen each other for, at this point, it was three or four weeks because of the school closures. And so they ran over and they're like, hey, our friends, who none of which we've seen for nearly a month. And um, we had a brief conversation. The mom was really nervous because she's like, oh, wait, we, we can't even be talking outside. Like, we're going to get in trouble for this. And I thought, okay, didn't, didn't really give it a second thought, but you're right. So she continued on. And... Um, my, my kids continued to throw rocks in the water and I took up exercising on a log because again, everything else was closed. There was no way to engage in any sort of physical activity. So I was doing some of that. And an officer approached me from behind, uh, tapped me on the shoulder and I didn't even see them coming and wasn't obviously expecting that to happen and asked me um, if the children who were in my care at the beach were all mine because we were over the five allotted people outside uh, together. And I basically asked the officer, that I told the officer that was none of her business, but that we all lived in a house together and um, was, was obviously very shocked as to you know, what, what she was asking me. And, and I said, and, and what brings you here? And um, so she alluded to the fact that someone in the apartment dwelling adjacent to where we were had seen that there was some sort of gathering happening and called the police. And so she was hoping at that time that the person who called would be satisfied that the police were responding to the call, um, issued me, I suppose, some form of a warning, and then, and then she left and we continued to stay at the beach. I understand that you'd looked into the property lines. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there was another incident. Um, so the, the culmination of events that led to my questioning some of the arbitrary closures that were happening in my local municipality, the town of Coburg. Um, my husband and I had lost a business very early on in the pandemic. We had, just to kind of give some context here, we had executed a five-year plan. Um, we remortgaged our house. We consolidated all of our debt. We took out all of the equity that we had got in our, in our we had built up in our home. And we uh, started a business that took several months longer than we anticipated to get off the ground. Um, it was a construction type industry. So my husband had been operating a hydrovac excavator. The context here uh, really lends to why I was engaging in the advocacy work that I was in this particular instance that you're asking me about. And, and so we had, my husband had been working as a hydrovac excavator. And so he, they use heavy pieces of equipment, large hydrovac trucks. 
uh, to excavate and dig underground to expose things like utilities, gas lines, water mains. And he was working in the utility industry. So they were doing installations for things like Rogers Communications and Bell uh, Fiber Optics. And so we purchased this large piece of equipment at half a million dollars um, in November of 2019. And we didn't realize at the time that financing would take so long to go through because obviously construction, especially tunneling underground in December and January in Canada is very tough. So December and January were really a hard go for us with um, nearly $20,000 worth of overhead on this particular endeavor, which would have been fine because the money coming in would have would have easily offset that. Um, February was still a little bit tough, but March 2020 was his best month worked. And we thought, this is great. If this continues, we'll be able to pay off this vehicle a lot sooner than we originally anticipated, get out of this one-year rent-to-own contract, bring our expenses way down, and, and, and the rest will be, will be gravy. We've planned this out. We rented our house out. We moved in with my father. We, uh, we did all the things over a five-year plan to execute this business endeavor. Um, and then April of 2020, the Ford government instituted further restrictions on construction and the company that my husband's company was subcontracted to, which was Rogers Communication, shut down their construction across Ontario for one month. And at that point, we only had one month worth of overhead left. And so that month, those four weeks turned into six weeks. And then when things started to slowly come back a little bit in his industry in May, he was working one, two, maybe three days a week, not enough to, to give us that threshold of meeting that overhead expense. And so by June of 2020, we made the extremely difficult decision with literally nothing left. We had, we had nothing to fall back on. All of our savings were gone. The equity in our home was, was used. We made the very difficult decision at that point to um, give back this truck and, and end our contract there, which had a ripple effect for that company. But um, it was at that point that I decided we had nothing left to lose anymore. Um, I had been delegating at our town council meetings. I had been reaching out to our MP, eventually even, sorry, our MPP and eventually even our MP. Um, I had been petitioning the town who went above and beyond the provincial regulations and arbitrarily closed all of our green spaces. They restricted access to the Northumberland Forest, which is acres, hundreds of acres worth of forest. They closed down our local public beach arbitrarily above and beyond the provincial guidelines without a bylaw, without any sort of legal check or balance put in place to do so. And I had been petitioning them and delegating and asking for que asking questions and never receiving any answers. Either I was completely ignored or they were responding to me, you know, that noted and received. And so by June, um, I was we had we had lost our business. Uh, still, these closures remained. My children had no access to any of the normal amenities that you know our tax dollars go toward funding. They were really suffering the effects of isolation, as were we all. Um, and so I decided to engage in an act of civil disobedience. And so when the town continued to keep restricting access to this shore and the public beach, they weren't paying attention. They weren't answering my questions. No one was listening to any of my concerns and the concerns of other people who I'd met along the way expressing the same. 
And I decided to walk the shoreline in defiance of their arbitrary closure. Now for the lot lines, I want to mention here that I had researched the roll call numbers and where the town's property ended and where it began. And I discovered that the town doesn't actually own a segment of the sand, and of course they don't own the water. So uh, there's riparian rights that are involved here when you're, when you're looking at a shoreline, a fluid moving thing that doesn't have a defined lot limit. And so I strategically entered the water from the pier, which is on Crown land. The town does not own that property. They could never have restricted access to it. Um, and I walked, walked the beach shoreline. And so in doing so, I think that there was calls put to bylaw and or the local police uh, where they met me on the opposite side of the shore and they proceeded to tell me that I would be hit with an $880 COVID-related trespass fine to which we bantered uh, a little bit back and forth about the fact that I was not on any town of Coburg property, I was not trespassing, and I never actually entered any area of the sand which they had, in my still to this day opinion, unlawfully restricted access to. Uh, one thing led to another when I wouldn't, I refused to identify myself to receive that fine, and it resulted in me being arrested. I was handcuffed, I was detained, I was put in the back of a, a police car, and I was brought down to the local jail where I was held for about an hour and a half in a jail cell after being fingerprinted and mugshotted for walking my local shore in defiance of arbitrary COVID restrictions when no one could answer me whether or not outdoor viral spread was a documented scientific thing, which to this day we know it is not. Did any of the officials seem to have an idea of the lot lines you were referring to? I had been asking the town what justification they had to close this shoreline, where their lot lines ended, if they had the lawful authority to impose this sort of measure. Again, my communications, my questions, my delegations were met with the response that it was received and noted. Now we'll shift back to the business losses, which you've already explained a little bit. Uh, we heard that you surrendered the, uh, the, the heavy equipment in June 2020, right? Yes. Uh, can you comment on whether or not the company that you purchased the equipment from was it all flexible and what kind of circumstances you could observe them to be in? Mm -hmm. So the company was primarily based out of the United States, which didn't have at that time the same level of restrictions that we had, but they had a satellite office here in Ontario. And they gave us a little bit of flexibility in terms of making the payments because there were some months where we said, you know, we need a few extra days. Um, but there's, there's an interest factor on a late payment like that. And then when you're dealing with an overhead charge of 13000 500 and change, uh, the interest adds up very quickly. So it wasn't long that we could sustain something like that. And we also had to come up with the uh, bulk of the purchase price by November of 2020 to, to meet that contract deadline of buying the, the, the rent to own vehicle outright, um, which we would have done easily and happily had that March 2020 uh, invoice 
had those same level of invoices been continuing on throughout the next six, seven months. The company that we had been on this rent-to-own contract, the gentleman that we were dealing with directly here in Ontario, what worked as a commission, his job was was commission-based. And so when he had these vehicles out on rent-to-own contracts or on leases, what have you, he received a certain percentage of commission on those vehicles. And it was very difficult for us to decide to give back this truck because the bulk of the financial fallout of that really fell on this particular gentleman. So all of the trucks he had been receiving commission on were coming back to the lot. And he was expressed to us privately that he was really concerned that he would be losing things like his his home and his livelihood and uh, other things to do with his personal life and his family. So we started to see really the ricochet effect and we held onto the vehicle for longer than we probably should have because we didn't want to negatively affect this gentleman who we developed rapport and a relationship with. Uh, so that was a really, really difficult part of the decision as well, was knowing that it would, would harm other people too. Did you apply for any business grants from the government or elsewhere? So that was another part of this puzzle is that you, in order to apply for the grants that were being rolled out at the time, you had to show one year of tax returns. We had just begun our business in November of 2019. We didn't have any form of record keeping or paperwork to show at that point, nor did we really have any form of invoicing. November was a really tough month. We were just working out all the kinks of the business and of the the vehicle. Um, and December, of course, with the, the nature of our country and winter and digging underground and Christmas, um, it was not fruitful for those two months. But regardless, you needed a full year's worth of tax returns to even apply to these business grants. And even if we were able to, I don't know how we'd ever repay those grants given the situation that we were in with the rental of this vehicle and not having consistent work in from April onward. Ultimately, how did your family survive financially? Uh, well, I was primarily a stay-at-home mom at that point as well, and so I ran a small graphic design business, which I mostly um, shut because I was helping my husband do all of his um, advertising work, and I was doing the bookkeeping for him. And I also served uh, on the side evenings and weekends when my husband was at home, so I was a server at a, a local restaurant, and that was completely gone. We, we I actually worked... Uh, the St. Patrick's Day before the shutdown happened. And I thought, wow, if there's this crazy viral threat, um, I really hope I didn't pick it up at the bar. I just worked all weekend touching people's cutlery and glasses and being in close contact with, you know, intoxicated people. Um, but if it weren't for the fact that we rented our house out and moved in with a family member, we also would have lost our home. It, it was by the grace of God, really, that that didn't happen. And we, we set ourselves up for the success of getting this business off the ground, which no one would have ever foresaw that a mere six months later, we'd be facing unprecedented lockdowns and closures and economic sanctions by our own government. But then my husband, he, he, it was really hard. It was obviously a dream of his, so it was really difficult for him, um, that drive back to, to take the vehicle back. Um, he, he then went to work again in the industry for the man, not for himself anymore. And 
Over the next 14 months, he worked his way up in this company doing the same line of work. He was one of their most reliable workers. Um, during this time, we, we had a baby also, uh, a little surprise pandemic baby that who we love dearly. Um, and so this company that he had been with since the time of our business loss even sent us, uh, when we had our baby in March 2021, they sent us a small monetary congratulations with a little bib. And then seven months later, when the COVID mandates came out in September of 2021, my husband uh, was terminated from his job in October of 2021 for refusal to divulge and disclose his personal private medical information. He repeatedly inquired with his supervisors, the human resources people deploying this policy on indiscriminately onto their workers. And I want to remind everyone that a hydrovac excavator works primarily outside and alone. He was not in close contact with anyone throughout any length of time, any day. And they were never able to ascertain the policy. They were never able to answer our questions on if this was reasonable, if it was justified, if there were any form of accommodations that could be exercised to ensure that he was keeping everyone else safe while still remaining gainfully employed. Uh, it even came down to the point where in an email, one of the people involved in this situation told him that the policy was about vaccine uptake and not immunity. Our family, at that point, we had already moved back into our home. Um, we were trying to regain some financial security, so we, we had moved back into our home. And at that point, our loose plan was to, because I was still on a maternity leave with a seven-month-old at home, in addition to our other children, and our loose plan was that he would take the remainder of my maternity benefits and I would transition to work full time. And it would get us through the winter months until the construction industry picked back up again in the spring and he would be in a better situation to get an, another job. But then they put on his ROE that he had code, I think it was code M, that he was in non-compliance with a workplace safety policy and he would not be eligible for government assistance. So I immediately pivoted and thank goodness for my line of work, I was able to pivot and go to work full time, but we were down our main breadwinner's income. And to this day, in fact, this past few weeks, we have been discussing the very real possibility that we will be selling our home and moving back in with our family member because we can no longer sustain ourselves and stay afloat. Can you comment on ongoing childcare issues since you had to pull the kids from Montessori? So when my husband lost his job, our children had been attending a private Montessori school uh, and they have been attending there for the duration. We've been with the same provider for approximately 10 years. And at the time we had to obviously cut major financial commitments way back. So we made the decision to uh, remove our children from this facility. And since that time, we have been unable to secure any form of reliable, consistent childcare. Our two older children now go to conventional school, uh, despite my convictions otherwise. And we struggle to this day, to this week, to um, have gainful, readily available, consistent, reliable childcare because we've since lost our space in that other uh, school where the younger children would have been grandfathered in.
Do you expect that um, you'll both be able to return to full-time work unless you secure full-time childcare? That's part of the piece we're trying to figure out currently. So for anyone who says that COVID is over and the worst is behind us, there are still people out there suffering the fallout of these misinformed policies. Thank you. We'll see if the commissioners have any questions for you. No questions. Thank you so much for attending today and telling you. us your story. Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there. So please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.